VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, still no Patty. He's back Monday. Tim Powers in today. Last day for me on this tour. Been great being with you all this week. Uh, it's been a fascinating week from potholes to sewage to emergency rooms. And maybe if you stepped in a pothole and got some sewage on you, you got infected, you'd go to an emergency room if one were open. Anyway, we've had all manner of topic uh, on VOCM Open Line, and we're going to have more of them today. And uh, lots of uh, lots of. Uh, uh, calls coming in. I think we're going to talk to Jean Charest later on uh, today, one of the candidates for the conservative leadership race. He's going to talk to us around 1030 uh, about the state of affairs in the conservative party and his perspective on whether he can win or not. We're going to talk to Dr. Julia Carroll about melanoma. Yes, melanoma, skin cancer. Um, talk a little bit about that and how we in uh, northern climes ought to be careful around that. We might talk about a Brother Rice reunion. We might get talked to the premier ah, who knows what we'll talk about today but we want to talk to you now let's just give let me give you a few things first i know people call them bouquets on this program uh, so let me throw out a couple of bouquets first of all to the five newfoundlanders on the men's canadian men's softball team going to the world cup we talk a lot about hockey a lot about rugby a lot about all the sports in Newfoundland, but boy, oh boy, don't we dominate in softball. Uh, since I've been, a, since I was a kid, I'm still a kid at heart, I have recalled all the scene and watched all these great softball players from our home province. Um, now we got five men heading to New Zealand, great country, uh, to watch, and, and well, not to watch, they're going to play in the World Cup of Softball. Shane Boland, Sean Cleary, uh, Brad Ezekiel, Jason Hill, Colin Walsh. Hope I got all those names right, guys. If I didn't, I'm sorry. Nonetheless, good for you. Uh, way to represent Canada. Go kick some butt down there. I know we always dominate at softball. And this isn't a bouquet. This is more like a flower store. How about young Josh Norris, son of Dwayne Norris, as Brian mentioned in the news. Brian didn't tell you the best part about his resigning. As I say, he could probably buy FTD. He has signed an eight-year deal for $63 million. Uh, Norris was a 30-plus goal scorer here in Ottawa. He's, uh, he's well-liked in this community, one of two people on the Ottawa Senators with Newfoundland and Labrador connections. Of course, other one is uh, Drake Batherson, another star of the team who has family in uh, in Port-au-Basque. And it was funny. I think I mentioned this to Ben one morning when we were talking on the Ottawa Report. I was at the game when the Avalanche played here, and they uh, played uh, the Senators. And there was a point in the game where uh, Josh Norris and uh, young Alex Newhook um, skated past each other, exchanged positive looks and or at least I took it to be that way sort of signaling of their Newfoundland roots and anybody who knows the history of Newfoundland and Labrador hockey will know that their fathers were dominant players of their era in this province didn't necessarily have the same NHL opportunities Dwayne I think got a couple of games with the old Quebec Nordiques of course uh, famous for scoring the the great uh, goal that won the 1990 World Junior Championships and then John Slaney did it the year after but uh, Dwayne Norris and, and Sean Newhook 
Hook, uh, Alex's father, uh, fine fellows who in their day dominated provincial hockey and were contemporaries themselves. So that was all nice to see. Other thing to tell you, and again, the, I'm going to probably drive those who uh, are opposed to vaccination wild, but so be it. Call me and we'll, we'll talk about it. Signed up for my fourth booster yesterday in Ontario. You could do that as of yesterday her fourth shot, second booster, getting it on July 26. Not that one looks forward to it, but I'm glad I have that option. I'm taking that option again from my personal perspective because it it will help protect me and my family and others from the spread of COVID. And if I get it, it'll diminish the impact of it all. It was easy to do. It went online. That's how you do it here. Uh, I think you do that similarly in Newfoundland. And it took about a minute. And I had a whole range of options for boosters, not waiting for the new vaccine that uh, may or may not come in the fall. And some of cautions you may want to do that if you're younger and healthier. I'm young and healthy, but I'm going to take what is here now and go for it. So uh, I've booked the fourth booster. If that helps you think about what you want to do, great. If not, if you want to talk about it, great. Uh, I see a great story using the word great yet again in Newfoundland um, on the CBC about parents who are very excited that toddlers and infants can get uh, vaccinated now. So uh, that option uh, came uh, to reality this week as well as the government of Canada approved a Moderna vaccine for kids six months to five years of age. So there you go. That is the COVID quick talk from me this morning. Now, dominated the airwaves all week, as I said, and that is health care. And I just want to read you, and we'll get into what the province is doing and yesterday's announcement by the premier and, and the health minister and LMA. I just want to read you three paragraphs from an editor from an opinion columnist in the globe and mail this morning her name is robin urbach the headline on her opinion piece is canadians are delusional captives to a broken health care system she says canadians are delusional captives to a broken health care system we cling to the status quo with grim complacency comforting ourselves with the notion that it could be worse we could wait 18 hours in a hospital emergency room and then be charged for seeing the on-call resident we could wait nine months to see a specialist and then have to fork over a substantial copay we could languish in a hospital hallway for days waiting for a room to become available and then have to fight with insurance for coverage from an out-of-hospital visit. She then concludes with these two paragraphs. She says, let me just pull up the screen. What Canada needs is a top-to-bottom health care rethink. Yet we've been so conditioned to fear systemic change, so spooked by the prospect of making things worse, that we consign ourselves to the already pretty terrible. The situation is exacerbated by politicians who exploit the fear, that fear, to imply that, for example, integration of private services will turn Canada, Canadian healthcare, into something like that of the U.S., when in practice it will make us more like Germany and the United Kingdom. For now, only conservative leadership candidate Jean Charest, and he's on the program, as I say, has tepidly broached the topic of scrapping some of the sacred tenets of our ineffectual health care system. But that could change should he become leader of the opposition with just one well-crafted attack ad. Last paragraph from Robin Urbeck, if I can get it here. There we go. And so Canadians simply continue to suffer with a system where they will wait for hours 
in agony in emergency rooms, for weeks for an appointment with a specialist, or for months in pain on wait lists for surgery. All out of worry that change will make things worse and because no politician has the guts to take on the challenge. Now, there will be some politicians who will say that's not true. They do have the guts. Uh, Premier Fury will probably make the argument he does because he has brought forward health care reform initiatives. He's appointed Dr. Parfrey to look at health care transformation. But the broader argument still holds. Are we so afraid of change that we are prepared to accept Band-Aids. I mean, yes, yesterday's announcement was an important one, and I'm glad to see the LMA lauds it as such, providing more compensation in a hope to incentivize uh, doctors to stay in rural areas and to address the their the burden of work that they have is is a good measure. But as everybody admits, it's a band-aid. Is that do we continually want to have these band-aids? I heard Dr. Fury, the premier, this morning talk about the sustainability of the system. I wonder what system we want to keep sustainable. The current one isn't. We talked also, uh, the province announced yesterday he's got a surgical task force. That's great. And, and again, there are lots of smart people working for the government, working in opposition, who can probably improve things. But do we have the guts? And this has got to be led by us, the citizens, to say, okay, leaders, we're prepared to break it up. Give us some good ideas. Give us some good policies. Give us some choices that we can make here. That's what's needed right now. Uh, it's not just the leaders saying change is necessary. It's us overcoming, as Urbex says, the fear we have of change. The devil we know is better than the one we don't. And having sat here for a week and listened again to some of the stories that are out there, why would we even want to try and sustain the system that we have right now? It's not working. I'm still struck. struck. Uh, by the comments of uh, uh, the Ukrainian doctor who talked to us earlier in the week. And I know that's not the end-all, the be-all, that we can immediately credentialize, credentialize physicians and that'll fix it. But Dr. Shaborka, uh, I believe I got her name right. If I didn't, I will apologize and say it again, made the point that, look, I'm trained. I'm here. Why do I have to wait two to five years? And I, I know the government is looking at this. We've seen solutions to all of this. But boy, oh boy, we have to act. I mean, just listen to these stats. I mean, these stats are staggering that are in Urbach's piece. Canada's healthcare system is in crisis. In Nova Scotia, 100,000 people, the most ever, are on waiting lists for family doctors. I know we're near that. In Ontario, patients are enduring an average wait of 20.1 hours in Newfoundland, or in emergency rooms, the longest ever recorded. In Newfoundland and Labrador, emergency rooms that are supposed to be open 24-7 in rural communities are closing because of staff shortages. The same thing is happening in British Columbia. In Manitoba, paramedics have been called in to help in a hospital desperate for weekend staff. In Saskatchewan, overcrowding in hospitals has reached a crisis point. So we got to give our politicians some latitude here, but we got to keep the pressure on them. And it isn't just about, all right, you save my doctor and we'll worry about the other community. Let's get this done properly. And now we need to seize the moment to make real, real change. If you have thoughts on that, if you think I'm out to lunch, hey, probably I am. But I think time for boldness is here. This Tommy Douglas perfect system that's going to last forever is hogwash. It needs to change. That doesn't mean it has to be entirely private. I'm not saying that, but it needs to change. I agree with you, Robin Erbeck.
Speaking of something that needs to change, and again, this impacts us from a come-home-year perspective. So Ipsos has a poll out this morning. This probably won't shock you, uh, but it's uh, informative nonetheless. They sampled 1,000 people. It was released this morning. They said this, or they found this. 70% of Canadians agree that widespread delays at airports across the country are a national embarrassment. They kind of are. Uh, they also found 60% of people um, are awaiting or are going to wait to travel until there's improvement. Hey, that's not good either. I mean, this is a big rebound year for Newfoundland and Labrador. I've, I, I'm going to the province again this weekend. I'm going to Labrador for a few days. Uh, I know the flights are all jammed. That's also because there's less flights. But nonetheless, I know people want to travel. I understand why. And, but that that's not good uh, if we can't build back the capacity there to help address all of this um that that creates economic worry and whoa uh and it it makes it difficult for businesses to to rebound and the fact that our airports don't work i mean look the, the, it's not just about you losing your bags and uh, moaning and carping about the, the frustrating air service we have to the east coast Major businesses, any business, don't have to be major, minor. Transportation needs to work in a country for people to want to live there and work there. They want efficiencies. They don't want to lose hours and days trying to see their families or get to their meetings. All this has to be fixed. It's tough. It's tough. And if you thought that was bad enough, this is my avalanche of crap as it was been take your crap to Tim Day. It's, that's the whole week. How about this? Just a couple of other notes. I was I thought, you know what? What haven't we really talked about this week? Because we talked about a lot. We haven't really talked about climate change. So I was listening to the national news when I was dropping my son Patrick off this morning. And of course, climate change, which is always present, reared its head again. Uh, lots of concern in Britain right now about extreme heat and extreme heat warnings and wildfires in other parts of the world. Boy, we are at a time when solutions and choices are necessary and avoidance is not an option. And I'm not being hysterical. I saw some person, I won't dignify them with a positive uh, descriptor on Twitter saying I was repeating the globalist agenda. Give me a freaking break. You only need to open your eyes, read mainstream media and many parts of the mainstream media. You don't have to take it from one source. There's a lot of challenge out there. I'm comforted by the fact particularly when you're a Newfoundlander and a Labradorian, we're full of optimism, we're full of hard work, we're full of determination, we can get things done. But putting your head in the sand and blaming stuff on conspiracies is just lame-o nonsense. Lame-o nonsense. But if you want to call and we can have a chat about that, I'll respect your right to have an opinion. Give it a go. Lots of calls here today. Yours will be among them if you want to come up. All right. Time for our first break here on VOCM's Open Line. Just a reminder, if you want to get me, uh, at Powers Tim on Twitter. I'm sure that gentleman will come back at me. Or on uh, the email, the snail mail of the day, openline at vocm.com. Or even better, just give us a call. We like that too. Time for our first break. When we come back, your calls. Welcome back to Open Line. Tim Powers in here for Patty. Uh, just when I thought I'd given you enough darkness, I've got Colin, who's a thought. No, no, Colin himself is not dark. He's a, a very thoughtful man who pays a lot of attention to world affairs. And Colin is going to remind us, too, there's something else we need to be worried about. And it isn't Russia and the U Russians in the Ukraine. That's We all know about that one. It's a, a nuclear deal that's brewing between... 
uh, that's looking to come together in Iran. Colin, tell us about it. How are you? Good day, Mr. I'm, Powers. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Tell us what's going on with this deal. I, I've been following it on the periphery. I know the Israelis, as you would expect, are very, very worried about us. But give us some context and background for the listeners, please. Well, in uh, around 2013, uh, President Obama uh, negotiated uh, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, which kind of put the brakes on Iran's uh, Iranian uh, uh, nuclear ambitions for, among other things, enriching uh, uranium to uh, get it up to the level of weapons grade for uh, nuclear nuclear warheads. And uh, that deal, by all accounts, was uh, working pretty well. And uh, then Trump it blew allowed. it up, right? He, well, pres- yeah, President Dumpster Fire came in in 2017. <laughs> and, no, no, that's a bad deal. I'm getting rid of that. So, you know, anyway, he 86 the deal. And now, uh, of course, since uh, the deal has been breached, Iran is uh, fast-tracking its uh, uranium enrichment program, mm-hmm. and they, they could have a breakout uh, time period within the next two years, I think. But I was watching Biden yesterday in Jerusalem for a bit. Where, where the is, where, and it's important just for people who may not know. I mean, Israel has always been extremely. Cons- Israel views its greatest threat uh, as Iran. Uh, it has always adamantly opposed any accord with Iran from its largest ally, the United States. Um, Biden, of course, was the vice president under the, under President Obama. Uh, Biden uh, was in Israel, as you said, Colin, getting uh, bits and pieces of uh, guidance from Israel. And uh, back to you. Go ahead. You saw him in Israel yeah. yesterday. And? Yeah, he was at a press conference in Jerusalem with the uh, caretaker uh, prime minister there now. And uh, he made the statement that Iran will not be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. He didn't say they didn't Iran will be strongly discouraged yeah. or there will be incentives for Iran to rejoin the deal or anything like that. He was adamant. So my question is, uh, rhetorically, I guess, what does that mean? If you're taking a hard line in the sand and you're saying, as a, as policy of the United States government now, um, for foreign policy with regard to Iran and its nuclear ambitions, the United States will not allow, allow Iran to possess or develop a nuclear weapon, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. To enforce it. Yeah. And, again, provide context here. I mean, maybe it's obvious, but why should we be concerned about that? Why, why, why do we need to add this to our list of worries, given what we know about Iran and global tensions? Well, Iran is a uh, state sponsor of terrorism in the Middle East with Hamas and Hezbollah. Uh, they are the arch enemy of Israel, as you point out. Israel has nuclear weapons, although they don't admit that. It's always been... Uh, denied officially, but uh, they do. You have to assume that they do. Uh, if Iran develops a nuclear weapon, then I think that opens the floodgates. Uh, you're going to look at the Saudis. Mm-hmm. They're uh, in a proxy war on the Arabian Peninsula with Iran and Yemen. Uh, they're going to want to try to level the playing field, and I think their nuclear ambitions are going to be stoked, too. So do you really want uh, MBS, the leader of uh, Saudi Arabia, the crown prince, who's a murderous psychopath. Do you really want him developing nuclear weapons now, too? Mm-hmm. 
what do you – I mean, one of the hopes with Biden was there would be a return to sensibility and a greater appreciation of reestablishing global stability because of his experience, because he had been chair of the Foreign Services Committee, he'd been the vice president, he'd had all this lived experience, he didn't have the same uh, predispositions for craziness, let's say, uh, that President Trump has. Have we seen – I mean, I think I know the answer. It could be rhetorical as well. Have we seen any any evidence apart from Russia and the Ukraine that there is a an improvement as it relates to global stability involving new U.S. leadership? The new, which no. isn't as new anymore. It's two years old. No. Yeah. I don't think. I don't think. And by by the way, I'm a left to center liberal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't agree with everything Biden does, but uh, I, I I don't see any optimism in the Middle East on this issue. Iran kicked out the nuclear inspectors, which were an integral part of the JCPOA. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now there's nobody on the ground to actually verify what they're doing at their nuclear installations like Natanz and Fordo and Isfahan. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Saudis are watching this, and they're also watching how the Americans are playing this. You know, uh, Biden is uh, heading to Saudi Arabia later today as part of his Middle East tour. He was just in the West Bank uh, about an hour ago. And, uh, yeah, I think MBS is going to be looking to uh, level the playing field. He's, he's looking at Iran, and uh, I think he wants to level that. And, of course, the Russians got their fingers into the pie in the Middle East and Syria and Iran too, right? Where are you, Colin? Just I want to get your take on this, and then I'm going to take another call. But a lot of news this week about uh, Canada returning uh, the turbine to Germany, the turbine that helps natural gas move from Russia to uh, Germany to make sure that uh, Germans have the power to do what they want. Strongly condemned by the Ukraine. Were we in a no-win position there? I mean, what's your take on that? I agree. Uh, If you didn't return the turbine, uh, Germany is uh, very dependent on Russian gas, and uh, you would, if you potentially you're going to crash the largest economy in uh, continental Europe, right? Yeah, uh, although uh, there is a benefit in this, I suspect, and that maybe Germany will look more favorably, and this could benefit Newfoundland and Labrador, because we've talked about this before sure. on the export of, of natural gas, depending where we go with all of that, because Germany does want two natural gas ec- uh, terminals uh, in uh, in eastern Canada. Anything else you want to quickly add, Colin, before I take the next call? And the Germans are shutting down their nuclear power facilities uh, at the same time they're uh, get the boots put to them by the Russians now over oil and gas uh, exports to uh, you know across the pipelines into Germany, right? And this was a plan going back to Merkel. This is before Schultz. They were, they were planning to get off nuclear. So I think mm. the Germans are in a big bind. Yeah, you know. It, it, it's funny. I don't. Again, I don't know what what age you are, but you certainly know your history. I, I feel like I'm a kid again in the 1980s with all the uncertainty that was swirling in the world again. It's the, the only, and it, it may be more unstable than the 1980s. I may have not been wise enough as a kid to realize it, but boy, it, it feels like that time in the world again, where we everything is on a tender hook, and it's it's scary. All right, Colin, got to leave it there. Thank you. Always appreciate talking to you. Cheers. Have a good weekend, my friend. Take care. That's uh, Colin bringing us some important perspective on what's going on in Iran and uh, uh, and across the seas. All right, a couple of quick but important calls. Susan, you want to, Guyney, you want to talk about a fundraiser you have on the go? Tell us about that. Hi, Tim. It's Susan Guyney. Uh, I've been talking to uh, Linda last week, and I've talked to Patty in the past, and it's about uh, the Guyney fundraiser. This is the seventh annual Guyney fundraiser. 
And we will be in Chapati tomorrow. Um, one team of walkers will be, my husband's team, will be walking from Portugal Cove South, the um, Arc of, uh, the edge of Avalon. No, not the edge of Avalon. It's the interpretation center there in Portugal Cove. And they're walking towards Chapati. And then there's a group of people leaving with Mark Pennell from the old fish plant in Chapati. And we're going to meet at the edge of Avalon. Okay. Now, it's your so, it's your husband who does all the push-ups, right? I got that right, yes, right? Yeah, he's going to be doing some push-ups tomorrow. Push-ups have kind of, uh, they're not... The priority any year. You're not the priority anymore because not everybody can do the push-ups, and but everybody can walk and everybody can talk. So we found that walking and talking was uh, better for our fundraisers. <laughs> it gives uh, a lot of people to come out and talk to us and meet with us. And we have uh, a great response from uh, from uh, lots of people on the sun and shore and all over. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, we're going to be doing that, and then we're going to meet at the edge of Avalon at 1 p.m. And they're having uh, hamburgers and hot dogs and some live music, and um, there will be a chance to sit and mingle with a few people and maybe collect some donations and hear a few stories. And All right. Um, we're just really focused on... Uh, the walk this year, more so than push-ups. But there will be some push-ups tomorrow. So. Well, listen, the one thing we know Newfoundlanders can do pretty well is talk, and they can also walk. They can walk yeah. the walk and talk the talk. All right, Susan, and thanks for the call. Okay, thank you for your time. Okay. G- good luck. All right, okay. Kevin, you want – thank you. Kevin, you want to come on and talk about the Ottawa Senators? you got a couple of minutes, my friend. Fire away. Just wanted to enlighten you, Tim. <clears throat> there are three – players on the Senators. With no oh, players. Clark Bishop, are you going to tell me who's the other one? Parker Kelly. Par- oh, okay. Tell me Parker's. I, and I, I, I just before you tell me that, I, it works here that I uh, I, I uh, get some uh, chiropractic assistance on an old broken up rugby back, and the Cairo is the Senators' Cairo as well, and he mentioned Parker Kelly, Kelly to me yesterday. I didn't know he was a Newfoundlander. Tell me the, the connection, please. He's my sister's grandson. No way! That's awesome. Yeah, he uh, he won the memorial of the uh, Western Hockey League Championship with the Prince Albert Raiders. He was the MVP. He wasn't drafted, but uh, right after the draft, Ottawa gave him an offer. So he's in the third year now of his contract, and he's I guess it's up this year. He had eight well, goals last year and fifteen points on the fourth line, and he only played half the season. That's so awesome. I, I I don't know if you've had a chance to to see the team play live. There are there are great important you know now that they have this mix of course with Giroux and uh, the fellow from the Rangers um, coming over, but they're 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 and they're well loved in the city because they all do a lot of things. And I heard again inside baseball for uh, for you the uh, the chiropractor was telling me he thinks that uh, Parker Kelly will be on um, third or fourth line. So good for Parker and good to know there's a third. Jesus, you're going to make me spend more money go watch that hockey team now okay i just wanted to let you know Tim. 
Thank you, Kevin. Great to know. I will uh, look out for Parker Kelly. All right. Thank you for that. That's good to know. There, there. We should all, uh, when we cheer for Alex Newark and Dawson Mercer, don't forget the Ottawa Senators. All right. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to have Dr. Uh, Julia Carroll, who's a dermatologist, fellow at the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons, member of the Canadian Dermatology Association, a member of Melanoma Canada, board I'm also on, to talk a little bit about melanoma. We don't think a lot about it in Newfoundland and Labrador, but I can tell you, touch is close to home for me, and I'll tell you about that after the break here on VOCM's Open Line. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Well, welcome back. As I mentioned, we're going to talk a little bit about melanoma right now, skin cancer, uh, often associated with the sun. Uh, we get it so rarely in Newfoundland and Labrador, we don't think a lot about it, but we should. And to help me do that, uh, please to be joined by Dr. Julia Carroll from Compass Dermatology. Julia is trained in dermatology at the University of Toronto, and she also has gone to uh, medical school in Atlantic Canada and studied in Atlantic Canada, so she will know what I mean about the rarity of the sun. And we are also colleagues, though I have not met in person, but I'm delighted she's joining us uh, on the Melanoma Canada Board. Julia, how are you? I'm amazing. How are you? I, I am uh, I am good, and thank you for joining us this morning. On a sunny day, by the way, in Newfoundland and Labrador. Oh, so <laughs> so I, I, let me give you the personal story first, which I don't think it's probably pretty common for you to have heard, particularly given your, your history in Atlantic Canada. My mother and I both got melanoma. We're both uh, fair. We're both redheads. We're both fair-skinned. Uh, but we live, lived, in my case, in a province that doesn't get a lot of sun. And growing up, uh, she didn't pay a lot of attention to, to wearing uh, sunscreen, and I certainly didn't. I went about the old way of, of tanning in Newfoundland. You get the burn first, and after the burn goes, boy, your skin looks some good. Now, <laughs> uh, we'll get into no, the, to, uh, to our climate and, and challenges that are there, but just tell us about the prevalence of melanoma skin cancer in Canada. What do the stats tell us? Well, it is one of the most common cancers, particularly found in young adults, so between the ages of 15 to 29 and 30 to 49, and the seventh most common diagnosed cancer in Canada. If you really dig into the numbers, in 2021, almost 9,000 people were diagnosed with melanoma skin cancer in Canada, and of those, over 1,000 of them actually died from melanoma. So that's the bad news. Mm-hmm. Um, but the good news is that although it's a very serious and potentially deadly cancer, it's got a really high survival rate if it's detected early. And it's very easy to see because the, the changes are on your skin. Yeah, and talk about that because, again, I was very lucky in my case because it was a uh, a rugby-playing buddy of mine who had become a paramedic. We were at a barbecue. I had a pair of shorts on, and he said, you need to get that mole looked at. I wouldn't have ever known, and he was right. I was in within a day. I was fortunate to see my GP, and in three days I was seeing a dermatological colleague of yours here in Ottawa, and lo and behold, I had uh, I had melanoma. Thankfully, it's all been, been managed properly, but tell us about about what to look for or tools that may help people as they're looking at their skin, wondering if something is amiss. Yeah, well, that's a great story. I mean, that that paramedic probably saved your life. Don't um, tell him that. I'll owe him forever, Julia, but yes, no. you're right. <laughs> so we make it really easy for people. We call it the ABCDEs of melanoma. 
So when you're looking at a mole and you're trying to decide, should I be worried about this or not, look at it's A stands for asymmetry. So does one side look like the other? B is for the border. Does it have a clear, crisp border? Or is there a, like a part that's kind of leaking out or blurred? Uh, C is for the color. So if the color's changing, particularly getting darker, but any change in color um, would alert you. D is for diameter. So typically something that's bigger than six millimeters would be of concern. And then E is for evolution. It's kind of a catch-all. So we just talk about if a mole is changing, particularly if it looks nothing like other moles on your skin, then that's one that should be checked out by your family doctor or dermatologist. And uh, there are a lot of online tools now, correct? I mean, I know Melanoma Canada, we have some, there are others out there. Are there any uh, online tools? I know often physicians are cautious to recommend online tools uh, because WebMD can take you down some rabbit holes. But are there some online tools or other places you can recommend that people look uh, if they're, go ahead. Yeah. You know, um, I think the Melanoma Canada website is a great resource, lots of photos there. Um, But I really think, you know, maybe call me old school, but I, you know, people send me pictures all the time. Mm -hmm. um, And I always say I need to see it with my eyes because it's one thing I did learn over the pandemic was practicing virtual medicine. You know, certainly has its benefits, but it also has its challenges. And I would see something over the camera or in a photo and Um, you know, bring the patient in. And often it had a very different look. And I use an extra tool as well in my office, something called a dermatoscope. And this just gives me a little bit more uh, depth. I can see it's magnified and I can see the structures of the mole under that dermatoscope. So I really think that it's good, you know, the ABCDs are good to screen. Some of those online tools can at least maybe let you know how quickly you need to get in. But if you're really worried about something, get someone to lay eyes on that, uh, on that mole. And, and again, I'm trying not to make too much light of it, but there's always been, I've found, particularly in our home province of Newfoundland and Labrador, a bit of a blasé attitude about worrying about the sun because we don't see it that much. It isn't just a joke. It's a reality. Uh, and yeah. I don't think fog gives you melanoma. But um, <laughs> have, well, what have you I'm seen no about emotion, northern so. research yeah. in Newfoundland? Well, what have you seen about yeah. climates like ours when it comes to uh, melanoma awareness and then cases of melanoma? Right. So, you know, there are um, like the incidences are relatively consistent across Canada. And, you know, there's other things to know. I think that the days where I tend to see the the bad sunburns are when it is an overcast day and maybe there's a bit of breeze because you're not feeling the heat from the sun, but the sun is still there. And the ultraviolet A rays, which are the ones that go deepest um, into the skin and and certainly cause a lot of damage, including um, skin cancer and also aging. Um, So those are consistent all year long. So whatever city or town you live in, um, it doesn't matter what the season is or whether it's sunny or not, those ultraviolet A rays are the same. The ultraviolet B go up and down with seasons, but the ultraviolet A rays are the same. And then there's a couple other things. Like I find people that live in climates where you don't see a lot of the sun. As you mentioned in your story off the top, when you when you get when there is sun, everyone kind of runs out, heads to the beach, out in the boat, and tries to soak it in. And we know that those intermittent sunburns 
definitely increase your risk of melanoma. And then there's a lot of people that work outdoors, you know, so people that are, uh, you know, farming, fishing, and outdoors for a long time. And that tends to cause the chronic sun damage, which causes the non-melanoma skin cancer. So those would be basal cell carcinomas, squamous cell carcinomas. Um, I did my training at, uh, as you mentioned, Dalhousie in in, uh, Halifax, and there was certainly, uh, you know, no shortage of skin cancers to be seen. Yeah, I, I, it's funny you talk about running out to see the sun. I, and maybe it's this thing about rugby players. Maybe we're all just daft. But I had another teammate who, when the sun would come out, would go in his driveway with a tin foil pan and try and reflect oh, it on no. his face. Yeah, I recommend did you, you did don't. Did he add do... the baby oil, too? <laughs> he added a little bit of baby oil. Yeah, he thought he was Chris Hemsworth in the day, but he wasn't. Anyway, um, on, a, on a more serious note, uh, two last questions for you because I appreciate you've got to work uh, as well today. Um, a lot. A, a a lot of talk today about challenges in the healthcare system. And one of the things that I've come to know in doing some work with Melanoma Canada is there aren't a lot of yous, Julia. There aren't a lot of dermatologists in the yeah. country. Give us a snapshot of the challenges in terms the patients may have in terms of accessing a dermatologist and if there's anything being done to address that. So there's 600 of us for, you know, 30 plus million Canadians. So it definitely is challenging. Yeah. So but Melanoma Canada has done some great work because it really does start with getting the message out to people. And so like, thank you for this opportunity, because just letting making people making people aware can get those cancers early so that they don't turn deadly. Um, and then we've done a lot of work, too, in educating family doctors and nurse practitioners so that they're also on on the on the lookout. Um, you know, I think with Canada's healthcare system, it comes down to always to funding. So there would there's a lot of people who would love to be dermatologists, and we'd love to have more dermatologists. The you know the education just needs to be funded. Yeah, I think in Newfoundland we're in the single digits, if I recall. Oh, some yeah. of the da- no, I know it's tough. Uh, last question for you. So the sun is splitting the rocks in St. John's today and across <laughs> the rest of the province. For those people who are going to go out and lie on the rocks, what should they be doing today or any day uh, when the U- UV rays are strong? Well, I want to, I like the any day because really it doesn't matter what the, what the UV rays are. If you can see your hand in front of your face, there's enough light out there that you should be protecting yourself from the sun. The risk is there. So at Melanoma Canada, we talk about the three ways to block the rays. So the first one is to apply a sunscreen with an SPF 50 or higher and make it a daily habit. I put it on every morning when I get up. It's still dark outside. I don't know what the day's going to be, but I put it on every day. And uh, the second one is you can use sun protective clothing. Um, and so that could be a wide brimmed hat, a specific clothing that has UPF in it. Um, sunglasses are also important because there's ocular melanoma or uveal melanoma that affects the eye. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing is just seeking shade. So if it is a, you know, a really sunny day and you're playing an outdoor activity, you know, or you're going for a picnic, do it under a tree or plan your um, your activity outside those peak hours, which tends to be 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. Uh, in most of Canada in the in the spring, summer, fall. Yeah, that is much better than grabbing tinfoil and a cooking sheet. Uh, <laughs> appreciate the time, Dr. Julia Carroll. Thank you very much. Very helpful. Enjoy the sunny day and stay safe. All right. Thank you. That was Dr. Julia Carroll, a dermatologist talking about melanoma. Be mindful. Be careful. It can affect you. Newfoundland and Labrador. Two people in my family have had it. Time for a break here on VOCM's Open Line. When we come back, Crystal, you're on deck to talk about emergency room issues at St. Clair's. I'm going to go to Crystal right now. Thank you, Crystal. You've been waiting for a few minutes. Appreciate it. You want to talk about uh, an issue at the emergency room at St. Clair's? What's the story? 
Yes, good morning, Tim. Thanks for taking my call. My pleasure. Um, On July the 10th, uh, my husband has been sick for multiple years, and uh, Sunday he just couldn't take it any longer, so I called the ambulance. Now, the ambulance came from town because there was no other ambulance here in CBS available. Uh, It took 45 minutes to get here. Um, When they came, uh, he walked out to the ambulance, but he's very weak. So when he got to the hospital... Um, they took him in and they took blood work. The ambulance left and they put him out in the waiting room. Now, they did give him gravol when he was in the ambulance um, for the nausea because as soon as he'd stand up, he'd be nauseous. Now, he hadn't ate in two days, so he's not, nothing's coming up, obviously. And, and just um, let me stop you there for a second, yep. Crystal, so people understand this. So when they, the, the the ambulance workers, obviously, or paramedics, whomever it was, knew what sim- your symptoms your husband was having, was that information mm-hmm. then transferred to the nurses, or as far as you know, so they were comfortable? What I'm getting at, were they comfortable <laughs> giving him gravel and putting him in the wheelchair? Uh, yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, they, they were ahead. fine with that. The girls were great. Okay. Um, so they brought him, brought him in, and they wheelchaired him into the hospital because he just couldn't stand. He was so weak. Um, then they took blood work, and ambulance left, and he, they punted him out in the waiting room. So once his gravel um, wore off, he's nauseous again. Yeah. He multiple times went up to the nurses at the, the station and said, you know, can I just lie down? I just need to lie down. His back is killing him. And uh, he was back and forth to the bathroom throwing up. And this was all like within a seven-hour span. So by the time 3.30 came, and he kept t- telling the girls, you know, I, I need to lie down. There's three beds behind him for the isolation room that nobody said, oh, you know what? That's not being used. Take one of them. No, nothing. Um, he even said to him at one point, I'm going to lie here on this floor if, if I can't get a bed. And she said, I wouldn't advise that. She said, the floor's right. <laughs> I wouldn't lie on the floor of the St. Clair's. Oh, my goodness. Uh, despite the work people do to keep it clean. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, it was about 3.30. He finally got in with the only ER doctor that was there. Understandable to short-staffed, but regardless. You're there. You're there to do the work. Um, they, the doctor came in and said, yeah, we're going to give you some tramadol. You uh, sit there now and, and see how that does for you, and then we'll, we'll go from there. And tramadol strong. I've had tramadol. It is very yeah. strong. Keep going. Yeah. My, and my husband's on a lot of medication, and that's mm-hmm. just saying now as a baby Advil. Um, <laughs> so they gave him that. As soon as the nurse came in, they put it in the tramadol in his arm, the IV, and then she took out the IV, and she said, yep, doctor's releasing you now. You're good to go. What? So his wow. hemoglobin was half of what it should be, and they knew that. Um, he heard the doctor. Sorry, he heard the doctor. Somebody's say, chirping there. Who's that? That's my dog. <laughs> my the, well, the dog loves you and clearly loves your husband. <laughs> my shadow. Yep. Your shadow. I got a cat like that here. Anyway, go ahead. So um, they gave him the tramadol and and said they were releasing him. So then um, when he when the doctor went back in the room, he overheard the doctor say, you know, he's sick, but not sick enough to be here. And when he left, um, the nurse was saying, we're, we're dismissing, we're releasing you now. And he uh, he said, but where am I going to go? And it was only half an hour that he seen the doctor. 
And he said, where am I going to go? i got to go at CBS. i got to get a cab. And you know what she said? You want welfare? <laughs> so what difference does that make, for one? And, beca- yeah. And, yeah. and because you had that thought in your mind, is that the reason why he got let out? Yeah. Because you just think he's just like, unfortunately, some people have addictions and, and they're there for help. They're not there just for shits and giggles. They're there for help. Got to watch they the S word. Got to watch the S word. My, my, my okay. bad. It's okay. It's my okay. bad. But he's now going today to get an iron infusion because it's that bad. You know, it's just, where's the compassion to? And because of the way, like my husband said, you should have came with me because you were probably more done up and, and didn't look so bad. And I said, well, how bad does that sound? That but, you know, you make, you hear you make a really good point, too, Crystal, because I've seen this firsthand. And if yeah. you have – and it's not necessarily how you look, too. It's also if you're prepared to push back, right? When you're the patient, sometimes you're sick and you're not feeling well. And you don't have the no. energy to say, hey, wait no. a minute. And you're also intimidated because we still are very deferential to physicians and, and nurses. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, but you can still question mm-hmm. them. Uh, I, 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 if you don't have a strong patient advocate, and that shouldn't be the case that could always be a problem anyway sorry go ahead it's well we're losing you You there crystal oh can you hear me i can yeah you and the dog stay still there and we'll we'll hear you perfectly um can you hear me now yeah you're good perfect so it, it just it just aggravates me that this is the, the way that the world is now with all the discrimination and all that, this is what I got to, this is what you got to, we've never been discriminated because of the way you look, a few tattoos, scruffy, the man's sick. Yeah. And because yeah. like, it, yeah, no, go ahead. No, I was going to say, well, the whole point of public care, public health care, is it's supposed to be universal. What does universal mean? Everybody's eligible, right. regardless of how, well, where you're from, what, what you, you look like, like what you're at, how you speak. Yeah. Uh, anyway. I mean, he could have came home and, and, and passed away. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's stories of that everywhere. Yeah, it's, it's, Just it's, because of the way he looks. And if, if he was on welfare, whoop de doo do, yeah, those that, people don't get the help like somebody who's making ninety or hundred thousand a year. Yeah. Yeah. Again, the point of public health care is everybody's supposed to get it. Uh, I, uh, yeah. Anyway, before I let you go, because I'm going to take one more call. Yeah. How is he feeling no, today, and how are you doing? Um, he's worse um, than he was when he went into um, the hospital. But what's the point to go in? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he is going for his infusion for uh, uh, iron today, so um, I'm hoping that uh, it makes him feel a little bit uh, not so he can actually stand up. Um, that would be that would be the best. I mean, he's only 45, so yeah, that's young. Um, for him to be so sick, yeah. But I, I I just wanted to tell my story that I just can't believe in the in the world we are now, and and you discriminate and not help. Because you think that they're they're less worth than you are. Yeah, that's not right. Um, And if somebody from uh, from Eastern Health wants to call and offer their perspective, they can. They listen as well. To I'm sorry, you went through. He's been apologized to by his uh, his GI and and the community health nurse for sure. And and you know it's not their fault, but you know just need uh, maybe a few more lessons in compassion. Well, or, or just you don't decency. know everybody's story, right? And decency, compassionate decency. All right, Crystal, thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. Have a great right. day. Take care. You too. 
Yeah, it's a tough story, and uh, I've heard others like it. Now, uh, we're going to talk about another story from an old friend of mine. I usually see him in airports these days, and we're on kayaks, <laughs> but he's not doing that anymore. Uh, Stan Cook Jr. coming on to pump the Brother Rice reunion, are you? Yes, I am, Tim. And Tell you know, me about it. I see you in, in, a, in an airport. So, okay, I know we're bumping up against 10 o'clock, so I'll get it out pretty quick. The reunion's Friday, August 5th. Uh, I've been on talking to Patty a couple times, and we have a couple of public service announcements that are kicking around. It's going to happen at the Legion. You had to get your tickets online. The challenge with the Legion is that they don't have the staff to be able to deal with walk-ups right now. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna, all tickets are going to be on Facebook. Um, it's called Brother Rice High School Diamond Jubilee Reunion. So if you go to that on Facebook, you'll see it. And for folks that are not on Facebook, the tickets are actually sold on a site called Eventbrite. That's E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E dot C-A. So it's Eventbrite.ca. If you go to Brother Rice High School Diamond Jubilee, you'll find them there as well. So the plan is to have a bunch of folks kicking around on the 5th. we got a lot of alumni have already signed up. It's a good-looking crowd. You'd know a bunch of them, Timmy, from, from your days of beating around St. John's and, and knowing a lot of these guys. It's, and, and girls, too. It's a, it's a good crowd. It's everyone from 62 to 99 when Brother Rice was a high school. So it's a real, real wide variety of folks coming and it looks like it's going to be a good night so we got a few more weeks that we're out pushing it because the legion's excited about you know hosting us we want to make sure we get a full crowd now is your dad coming the longtime oh. teacher of brother ice <laughs> Yeah, there's a bunch of teachers. There's a couple of the past principals that have reached out, and they're coming. So there's going to be a lot of staff and a lot of a lot of folks down there. So it should be really good. And actually, one of your other buddies, Kev Casey, he's mm-hmm. an alumnus of Rice, and he's put out a really nice thing for us to kind of boost. So if you go on this Facebook site and you tag a fellow Rice student that you know of, uh, you, your name gets entered into a draw, and whoever wins that, Kev is going to donate $300 to any restaurant of your choice, local restaurant, that you can go out and have a nice meal. So we're just trying to get people to be aware of it, let people know about the event. That was artful management of the language, because as you and I have known before, the Brother Rice name has been applied in ways that are less appealing and often very (laughs) offensive. Anyway, say hello to your parents for me. Appreciate the call. Good man. Thank you, Stan. Take care, brother. Cheers. All right. Uh, There you go. You hear what all the boys call me, Timmy. You can call me Timmy, too. Uh, I'm used to being called that much worse. Time for the news here on VOCM, then back with your calls. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to IrishNL at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com well as you've seen on the news uh, our website and heard brian talk about uh, there's a dispute going on uh, around some shrimp and there's a shrimp rally happening today and to talk about that is jason spingle of the ffaw the west coast labrador rep uh, jason welcome to the program good morning tim and i guess welcome back home again Thank you. Well, I'm going up. I'm going up Labrador this weekend, so I'm pretty pumped about all that. Haven't yep. been up there. Haven't been well, up there in a little. Good. I mean, uh, I guess on a lighter note, I'm. Uh, I'll always identify myself, uh, which I am a Labradorian uh, from Lance Claire. So. Oh, are you? Okay. A good place to visit. Yep. Yep. It, yep. It's, yep. It's beautiful country. Haven't been since the pandemic. Now, uh, less pleasing is what you're going through. So, can you tell people what this dispute is about and what the rally's about, please? Yeah, so the dispute is, uh, you know, the shrimp fishery has uh, faced more difficult times, uh, I think, than any other fishery or a lot of other fisheries in the past couple of years uh, with respect to, you know, the prices and such. And, uh, you know, we had uh, there's three uh, different times the shrimp prices are negotiated spring, 
summer and fall. So this spring, we uh, last year was a delay. The COVID year, I guess there was a delay in a lot of things, but last year there was a delay. We didn't start fishing until later. Usually it's a spring fishery in the Gulf, right? You have the Gulf, which is near Portishwa, and then you have the northern shrimp, which is southern Labrador Sea, off St. Anthony, that area more. So, okay. uh, And the 4-hour fleet, which is based on the West Coast, just a little bit of background here, they're the only fleet without anything else. They don't have any crab. Any ground fish, uh, the, the cod has been closed, and uh, or very low quotas closed now, and they just have shrimp. So, uh, you know, they're in the most difficult situation, but shrimp is important to other fleets as well. But in any case, you know, we got to a, a point this spring where we had a negotiation. Uh, the, you know, us, I guess, as the union, the, the harvesters, uh, were a long ways apart from the buyers and ASP. We, you know, the panel sided with us, and the buyers didn't buy the shrimp. This uh, summer negotiation would happen in June there, you know. Um, basically, the buyer stuck to a very, very low price, not reflected of the market, of 90 cents. Uh, you know, we, we thought we had what was a conservative price of $1.36. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I think everyone was surprised when the panel picked 90 cents. And they basically said, look, we don't think that this is reflective of what the market is, but you know, and and we understand a fishery may not occur. So we're kind of at that stalemate now. And and here's the reality, I guess, is we have um, um, 30, 30 boats with four families on each boat for four hour in particular. We have three plants, one in Portishwa, one in Anchor Point, one in St. Anthony, with upwards of 100 workers in each of those plants. And the reality is, like, we had a good, we've had a good lobster season on the West Coast. Everyone's happy about that. But the northern peninsula, from Portishwa north, without a shrimp fishery, will be a very, very, very difficult situation. So, you know, uh, when parties can't agree, you know, we've got provincial minister that uh, and provincial government that, you know, legislates the panel and has got control over processing we have mp goody hutchings who's the minister is a minister now of economic and rural development we just want to get the message out there now we're at the you know the loss of a spring fishery was difficult mm-hmm. but the time is past now and i just put it out there the time has passed particularly for harvesting shrimp in the north we've got a very sh- few short weeks uh, not a month, I would say, short weeks to, to try to rectify something here uh, because without that, the situation will be dire for the Northern Peninsula. So we want to bring a positive message out there today and hope that, uh, you know, people will see how important this is and hopefully get something moving. That's the bottom line, Tim. So. And how many people are you hoping will uh, will show up? Well, you know, I'm – I'm expecting uh, upwards of 150 people. I think we're going to see all of the harvesters. Um, we're going to see uh, probably all the plant workers in Portage Wine, Port Saunders. Now, people work in those plants all in almost every community up and down the coast, right? So I think a lot of them will show up. And I think we're going to see some concerned citizens as well that, that don't work on a fishing boat or in a fish plant, uh, you know, uh, or offload shrimp or drive trucks. People that know how important uh, or how how devastating it will be, for example, if uh, there's no shrimp fishery and no operation in Portishwa this year, right? So, 
You know, we just went past, as you know, the 30th anniversary of the Cod Moratorium, and I think one of the things that um, gets forgotten about is we still have uh, fisheries in the province worth over a billion dollars. Where does the shrimp fishery sit in terms of importance to our economy? Extremely important. Extremely important. Yeah. So I just repeat that we have three shrimp plants on the northern peninsula. Now we've had we've had significant quota cuts. The price is down a little bit to harvesters, uh, you know, and with the price of fuel, that's what's making this extremely difficult. But everyone's trying to work with that. But uh, just to put out there, ninety cents is just is just not even a break-even price, right? And I think everyone kind of knows it. But but it's extremely important. So while crab is the big driver, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the crab is the big driver. Like, if you take the Northern Peninsula in particular, Labrador as a plant, without shrimp, it'll be very, very difficult situation, yeah. And I just want to reiterate, like, what makes it more difficult for us, I guess, is that Quebec plants are paying in the dollar thirty-two to dollar thirty-five range right now. And so... And, yeah, that, that's know, a huge gap, right? Like, and, yeah, yeah, it's a huge, yeah. huge, huge gap, and yeah. your, your members Sorry. know the reality. All right. Got to yeah. leave it there, uh, Jason. Thank you for the call. Thank you for the update. We always follow these stories with uh, with, with, with the, the right degree of intent on VOCM. Uh, we'll uh, keep watching this, and you keep us updated. Thanks so much for the time. And like I say, I'll just put it out there. Anyone that has concern for what the shrimp fishery means, particularly on the northern peninsula, uh, you're, everyone is welcome to come today, 2 o'clock, at the parking lot near uh, the OCI plant there in Portishaw. I think everyone on the northern peninsula knows where that is. And I bet they do. Uh, we would we welcome to see as, as much support as possible. Thanks very much, Tim. And have a great and safe trip to Labrador. Thank you, sir. All right. Uh, that was Jason. We're not going to talk to Anthony. Anthony, Anthony, you want to talk about dangerous roads. Tell us uh, tell us your take on things. Well, I drove across the island a few weeks ago, and uh, the roads were absolutely dangerous, except through the National Park through Terra Nova and, and Gross Morn. Um, the, the worst thing I noticed, right, especially in the central part of Newfoundland, was that as the same right across the island is the shoulder of the roads. you got nowhere to pull off. There's big uh, craters. Uh, from the water, from the side of the, the shoulder being washed away. Um, and also, there's places where there's little small holes that you do not notice, especially at night, uh, um, where it's not like a you have a dirt road, it rounds off. It's like two inches of pavement that is sharp, and there's people being losing their tires. And it's not, not all the accidents are being caused from reckless and careless driving. And um, you know, even driving at nighttime, you, you do not see those little holes that are actually deep. And people have lost their tires. Could you know, could be an accident. There was a someone up on the on Goose Cove Road the other day who lost their lost their tire and rim. So um, yeah, so it's it's not good. You really got to. It's, driving at night is not really safe anymore. But the thing is that these are highways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you got Trans Canada, which is 100 kilometers. You should be able to maintain highway speeds, not have to. I know you got to drive defensively, but if there are highways that are going from community to community across the province, they should be kept up to standard. And I think the government is liable. I mean, some people I've talked to said, no, we're not liable because, you know, you're driving. But the thing is, the government knows that the roads are in hard condition. 
and nothing has been done about it. And uh, I really think we could be liable if we get, especially a, a, a tourist from the States who gets injured and has to have health care done. And anyway, I'll let you, I'll listen to what you have to say, but I really think something needs to be done. Yeah, no, I was just going to ask, rather than say anything, which is, uh, have you, again, you seen any uh, in evidence in the last number of years of any significant road work other than patching, or people are just letting it deteriorate? Because I, I asked that question, and I will make one comment, and that is, I mean, part of me believes, and I'm not a conspiracy theory person, I'm not living on Parliament Hill with a bouncy castle and tents and blaring yeah. music, but I, but a part of me believes the neglect is deliberate because, one, the the, the population is in decline in some of those areas communities are declining and the governments regardless of political strata are not rushing to pave roads because that may help encourage people to leave if their infrastructure isn't what it should be well i don't think that's the case i think the problem is the boondoggle with the muskrat falls has got the province almost bankrupt and there's very little money left over to do any maintenance because it's, pro- it's problems right across the island. It's not just the northern peninsula. It's right across the island. The roads are uh, atrocious. They're shameful right across the island, even the more populated places, right right from as soon, soon as you get on, as soon as you get just after, past the overpass, the roads start getting, because the, the roads are continuously being fixed up right in St. John's, but uh, uh the uh, the highway right right across the island is 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 not good, uh, and some of the especially stretches uh, be from um, well just coming out of the national park uh, before you get to Gambo right to Springdale area, all that stretches the the shoulders and they're really non-existent and they're okay. so if you needed to pull over. Um, Oh yeah, I, I, yeah, it's been a while since I've been on those roads, but I remember them being a bit of a Jurassic Park-like adventure. Anyway, got to leave it there, Anthony. Thank anyway, you for co- I, the only reason I brought up the subject is I want other people to talk. I like to hear from politicians and the RCMP and the Constab to see what they think about it. Okay, and uh, they're all welcome to call. Thank you, Anthony. Have a Thank nice you. weekend. Bye. Take care. All right, that was Anthony. Take a break here now on VOCM's Open Line. When we come back, Joshua and Roman, you're both up after the break. Okay, we've got Joshua on the line. Joshua, you want to talk gas prices and the environment. Go ahead, my friend. Good morning, Tim. Um, yeah, so two two quick points, actually. Uh, I'll get to the, the gas bit now in a, in a minute. But I did also just want to call in, I've been listening to your program periodically throughout the week and i think it might have been on i'm not sure if it was monday or tuesday uh-huh. uh you might recall this tim there was a there was a lady and this was when the power not the power outages sorry the uh, rogers the internet outages and the rogers kerfuffle was uh was still current and the lady's name was mary and yes. she was uh from gander she said and uh just listening to her, I, I I felt kind of sad, as I'm sure most, if not all, people did when they heard her, not just talk about her her internet struggle, but she, and I, I don't really feel bad for saying this because she freely offered this over the airwaves herself that she was not only feeling really lonely, but like that she didn't really want to live anymore, and like I uh, I listened intently after that. I was like, oh my gosh, that's 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 really sad. So like. I'm not sure if she's listening now, but I just wanted to first off say that I'll just throw out a throw out a digital or an audio hug to her, if you will, because uh, 
you know, I don't know her circumstance. I don't know her life story. I don't even know her last name, and that's fine. But I just wanted to know, like, there's people out there who do care. And, uh, well, also, hopefully she's got her Internet back by now because apparently that's one of the ways she would use to connect. Yeah. Um, you know, You're right. It was a very a moving story. You're right, Josh. It was yeah. a very moving story, and it's uh, true. For, for many people, it, it is a social uh, lifeline. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. I'm sure Mary appreciates that. Yeah, and I would encourage her, you know, I'm not sure if there's any uh, even social programs, not not social in terms of like, you know, social assistance programs, but just like community programs or community organizations in her area that might, you know, or even just these social groups that maybe she could connect with in Gander because, you know, that can make a huge difference on, you know, the quality of life and, and your outlook and everything, all that good stuff, right? But anyway, I'll, I'll park that there for now, uh, Tim, but also... Um, the main, well, another reason I called, should I say, was that, uh, so without getting into too much detail, um, I work in the transportation industry, and I really, I really like the job, and, uh, but being the summertime now, um, sometimes I'll just turn the vehicle off, you know, yeah. if I have a few minutes to wait, because, well, it's the environmentalist in me, for one thing, you know, and, but also it does save gas, even though it's not technically me directly who's paying for it. So that that was fine. Like that, like I said, that sometimes I do that just in general, especially in the summer, even if it's the company vehicle. Um, but somebody who approached my vehicle, um, and they know me, my you know they know me by name, and you know chats every now and then, you know, with the public in passing. Uh, but she said, uh, "What, sir? Why you turned the bus off, and uh, or the vehicle or whatever?" And uh, well, you know, I said. I kind of came at it from like the environment perspective and I said something like, well, boy, you know, the earth's not getting no colder. Right. And but the thing, the, the thing that she said in, in response, kind of like, I don't know if irked me was, the, was the way to say it, but she basically said, sure. The government's paying for the gas anyway. Why are you worrying about it? And so after she said that and kind of mulling it over after the fact, I'm just like, wow, is that actually her mentality and and or is that actually some people yeah. in society the way they look like, at it yeah yeah their mentality and 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 don't get me wrong i'm not this next statement that i'll make is is certainly not meant to be judgmental or condescending or anything like that but i did notice that this particular individual is outside sometimes asking for money yeah so and for her to come back to me and say sure the government's paying for it anyway why are you why are you feeling the inclination to turn off the company vehicle if the government's paying for the gas and just think like, my gosh, like that's disheartening to hear that that might actually be some people's mentality. And uh, so, yeah, I, I would just like the thing is, like I said, a, you know, the earth's hurting. We all know that. So the yeah. less emissions, the better. But like, even if the government's supposedly paying for it, you know, the money's coming from somewhere. You know, it's not just magic money. Like the government's pot is not—it's not, not know, infinite, uh, bottomless. Uh, and the taxpayers and, and and everything else. And like, you know, if if the transportation industry needs more money for gas, well, then another segment of the government might suffer because you know the whole domino effect. But I guess I would just encourage anyone with that lackadaisical mentality to just kind of like—I guess I just sort of. Yeah, I guess I can sort of see her perspective like, by you know, don't worry about it. But from my perspective, it's like, you know what? No, it doesn't affect my pocketbook directly, directly. But 
at the same time, we all, you know, we all kind of we have a we all have a role to play. Yeah, you're, you're Absolutely. right. Absolutely, right. right? Got to leave it there, Joshua. I got to yeah, take no one more call. You go for it. But you have a great weekend, and thanks for the time. Thank you for your perspective. All right, Roman, you're on the air. You've got a couple of minutes. You want to talk rental cars? Do such things yeah, exist in Newfoundland yeah. and Labrador? Well, uh, firstly, uh, I'm I'm normally out of Halifax. I listen to you when you're on with Todd Vino on okay. Fridays. I love your banter. So, but I'm Thank I'm you. actually here working, and I actually drove from Halifax. Took like three days between ferry and driving because I literally could not rent a car. I was uh, we our company has a guy that does our booking for us. So about a month or so ago, I said, "Well, I want to come in." You know, first I wanted to come in June, and he said, "Well, there's no cars to rent in Newfoundland." And I said, well, "How's that possible?" So, anyways, it's like I'm thinking, okay, well, uh, I mean, I guess the only good thing for me is I'm supporting some extra hotels and uh, a few other things in Newfoundland. I don't mind the driving, but I'm thinking about poor tourists. Um, you know, because they wouldn't necessarily know. They would, you know, when you book a trip, you normally book your flight in your hotel, and then kind of at the end you say, well, let's get a car. And it's like, okay, well, I don't know what you do. It's it's nuts. It's, it's bad in uh, Nova Scotia, too, but uh, it's really bad. And it must be killing the tourist industry. You know, It's a major... It's a major frustration, Roman. I, you know, people will tell you book at least six, seven months in advance. But as you discovered, you know, very few of us can book six, seven months in advance. Some yeah. people can, and God bless them. But otherwise, it's a, it's a roll of the dice, and likely the dice don't even get in your hand if you're thinking about a trip to Newfoundland in June for July, because the cars are probably all gone. It's been a, an issue for at least five to six years, if not longer. Yeah, it's it's hard, and you know, this has come home here in Newfoundland. Well, come home and hitchhike. Though, guess what, Roman? Apparently our Metro <laughs> yeah. bus service is better. So, you know, you can take the Metro bus. Yeah. What, one last thing. I'm coming in September, and I can rent a car, but by flying into Gander instead of St. John's, if I flew into uh, St. John's, it would be 1700 to rent the car, but by flying to Gander, it's 325 for the week for renting a car. <laughs> and, he, and if you're flying... And if you're flying Halifax to Gander, you're more likely to get in, too. So, <laughs> I know. Anyways, that's uh, the world we live in, I guess. All right. Anyway. Well, you, you, you keep listening on VOCM. You keep listening to Todd. I'm doing Todd later this morning when I'm done here. Good to okay. talk to you. Enjoy your trip. All right. That was uh, that was Roman talking about the wonderful situation with rental cars in Newfoundland and Labrador. Okay, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, one of the candidates for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada and the former Premier of Quebec, Jean Charest, is on the line. He'll join us after the break. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to Open Line. As promised, now on the line with us. The former Premier of Quebec, former Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, and Conservative leadership candidate and fan of Newfoundland and Labrador, Jean Charest. How are you, Mr. Charest? I'm fine, Mr. Powers. Also a big fan of Newfoundland and Labrador. You better, yeah, better get the big in. You still got to wheel in the votes. I know. Still, yeah. still some time to go. 
I, I am thinking of you and the other candidates, and I'm looking at this leadership race and thinking, wow, I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Let's just go through some of the highlights and the lowlights. Yeah. Pew, largest recruitment drive in Canadian history, 675,000 people. The expulsion of a leading candidate, Patrick Brown. And a nastiness uh, among candidates that would make even Joey Smallwood blush. Um, <laughs> what, can you explain what we've seen over the last number of months why have we had the drama and the internecine struggles and the uh the the flow of this campaign that has been all of the things i just described well let's start with the numbers uh the recruitment drives from the candidates have uh, generated a lot of interest and there is a lot of interest i think in the country about this race because people want the Conservative Party to be a national alternative, and they want us to get our act together. I think it speaks to the fact that the Trudeau government has run its course and that uh, people want a, you know, a replacement. So it isn't only the people we recruited. A lot of people came online to take a membership to vote for one of the candidates. Now, uh, Mr. Brown's story is, uh, is also something that was totally unexpected. And, uh, and frankly, I, I'm not sure how well it was handled. You know, this idea of resigning him in the middle of the night uh, doesn't, uh, you know, look good at first uh, sight. And, and I don't think he's going to be back in the race. So we're, at, we're right now, you know, we brought over his, his organizers. They're all with us now and, and his membership. And my challenge will be to get them to mobilize them, to get them to vote for me, which they're already ready to do for me on a second ballot. And, that, and the nastiness, well, you know, uh, frankly, that hangs on Mr. Podiev. I mean, he uh, he's the one who gave the tone of the campaign. His attacks have been have been, uh, you know, very, uh, very nasty, personal. And you may remember the Manning debate. I remember standing next to, next to him. I've been in Quebec politics for a long time. It's the Vietnam of politics in Quebec, but I never saw anything like that. It's one thing to attack someone. It's almost an aggression. And it's very personal, telling other people they're liars. If you don't, and I, I'm concerned about that because if you go into yep. politics and you're in a debate and you, the other person doesn't agree with you, and, and the only answer you have is that you're a liar, well, you're not you're not going to build much based on that. So that's that's Mr. Podiev's choice. I've you know, and I, I'm not a choir boy, as you know. I mean, <laughs> I've been in politics for a while. I don't, I don't, I'm not a. My instinct isn't to turn the other cheek. It's to fight back, and uh, but I try to restrain myself because you want to focus on what the issues are and, and not you know just get into this kind of discussion. Before before we get into the courting of Mr. Brown supporters, we, we don't need to spend a lot of time on the legitimacy of expulsion. We've talked a lot about that. I think, as you say, that's a done deal now. Um, I want to talk about, though, something you just raised there. When, when Canadians, because eventually Canadians are going to have to pronounce on the Conservative Party and make some decisions about whether they're comfortable or not with the Conservative Party, and there may be a long window, there may be a short window for the Conservative Party to sell itself to Canadians, but what do you think the average Canadian who's not part of this leadership race is saying, seeing when they see that nastiness and they also see the expulsion of Brown. Does the party look chaotic? Does the party look disorganized? Or are they assuming this is you know, a natural, difficult progression of an organization that's on a path of evolution? I think it'll play this way. When, starting the, when the race started, 
I think the circumstances are such that we would have naturally been the default position in the sense that mm -hmm. because the government's run its course, people would naturally look in our direction. Now, with what we've seen in the race, uh, you know, Mr. Padiev's attitude and the Brown expulsion, I think we moved from that being the default position to the jury's out. And uh, when the race will be over, uh, I win, or any or Mr. Podiev wins, they're going to they're going to look at us very closely to see how we manage the win, and how we get ourselves organized and what we present. And so, we've uh, it's not not ideal because we should we should be in a different place and a better place, but it's going to be a bigger challenge for us now to be able to present ourselves to Canadians as a political party that is decent and uh, and Canadian. You know, as you know, my whole point has been that Poilievre is pushing an American-style politics on us, this division and attack dogs. And I, I fundamentally believe we don't want to go there. And by the way, I'm concerned because look what's, what, what, look what's what happened with Americans. I mean, and, you know, the, where they are now, you'd think they'd be beyond that once the anger is, uh, is out there. But no, it's getting worse. I don't want to go there. I don't yep. think the country wants to go there. And, and so the other choice, frankly, is this. Who can win a national government? And, and I'm going to be very direct with you. I don't think Mr. Poitier, given what he's already shown, can win a national government. I can, and I will. That's the choice that members have when they'll be voting. Do you want to win? Do you want to continue losing? Or do you want to form a national government? You're hamstrung in some ways at the moment in that I don't think the party's going to have another a debate, which is unfortunate. I think they should. I think there should be more yeah. opportunities because there's still two months till the actual uh, victor is declared on September 10th. Voting will start or has started already, so you still have a persuasion period. Uh, you know, annoying pundits, myself among them, say it's very hard for you to win now that Mr. Brown is out because the working theory, and I welcome you to refute it, is that it's going to be hard to convert all of those people who were so committed to Brown to your side. Polls show one thing. I know you don't care about polls, and most politicians say they don't, but they do. Anyway, I, I hate to ask you this. How do you get the win now? If, if us annoying, pain-in-the-arse yeah. pundits are right, how do you get the win? Well, first, a comment on polls. My you know, rule on polls is this. A poll tells a story, but never tells the whole story. That's what you need to know when you read a poll and, and to put it in context. So I've, that's the word. And we use polls, and I read polls, and I look up. Of course I do. Under a tool. Now, how do I win? Uh, the, you know, one thing that Poilievre uh, has successfully done is create a very strong opposition to him within the Brown camp. Mm -hmm. Because the first day Brown came out, I mean, he called Brown a liar on the very mm -hmm. first day he came. Brown hadn't said anything. He was calling him a liar. And and so uh, the, Poilievre, the in the Brown camp and the membership there, they're, if they have one thing that defines them, is that they're, they're anti Poilievre. The other thing is that uh, I was, and they they were certainly very clear in telling their membership that Charest was their second choice. So it isn't so much a pivot for them as a next step. And uh, now you're, but you're right. You put your finger on the difference between winning and losing. It's going to be to mobilize them and get them out to vote. And for us, how do we do that? Well, we've recruited, uh, I think, 90% of the organizers. I've been on the phone talking to them, and uh, they're all 
coming on side. But it is going to be a bigger challenge for us to get a person who signed up for Brown to now vote for Charest, even if that's what they were leaning towards. It means we have to make a stronger effort, a more energetic, uh, we have to be very energetic in getting them out there. And and getting out the vote's going to be the key. The, this race will be won depending on who gets the vote out. And it's 100 points, remember, mm-hmm. as you know, for riding. I'm in the Saguenay as I talk to you. There's three ridings here. There's 78 ridings in Quebec. There are more ridings in Quebec than there is in Manitoba, Alberta, Saskatchewan combined. Mm-hmm. And so, and then the whole Atlantic and, and the Maritimes are very good for me. We're going to get our, our share out of Ontario, a good solid share. So this race is very much a race, and, and it'll all hinge on getting the vote out. Last question for you, because I appreciate you do have to go do some work there in the in the Saguenay. Um, and it is on a question on health care. Um, you're the only yeah. candidate, I believe, who is talking about looking at a the way we deliver health care and we have to be more open-minded on service provision you've just watched the premier's meeting you've been at those premier's meetings uh, and you've asked for money as well as premiers tend to do you know the state of crisis in in canadian health care what can a national government do to make a difference now beyond just dollars or is it just dollars it's dollars, but it's also changing the way the system operates. And what I would do is table a new Canada Health Act, untie the hands of the provinces, allow them to innovate and introduce more private sector delivery with a single payer, and uh, and move, for example, on recognizing qualifications of immigrants who come into the country who we need to help us run the system, and more recognition of qualifications within the country. There's a host of things that we can do to make it work. Challenging, because we know in advance liberals are going to come out and say, of course, the conservatives are going to privatize our health care system. Be. But you know what? I feel extremely confident about where I am on this because I ran the system. Mm-hmm. I know what I'm talking about. I look forward to standing on the stage with Mr. Trudeau or any other liberal leader to debate health care because you know what? I actually know what it is. Mm-hmm. Ottawa lives in a bubble. Ottawa doesn't know how to run a health care system. Do you think the folks who can't deliver passports know how to run a health an emergency room? Mm-hmm. Frankly, yeah. give me a break. It's yeah. time that we have a real discussion and that they stay in their fed, stay in their lane, and allow the provinces to get the tools they need to fix the system. And a fix it does indeed need. Uh, we need to be brave and bold, and now is the time if there ever were a time. All right, Jean Charest, always a pleasure. Go back to campaigning in the Saguenay. Thanks for making time for us this morning. Thank you very much, Tim. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. That's uh, Jean Charest, the uh, candidate for the Conservative Party leadership, former Premier of Quebec, Deputy Prime Minister of Canada. Just a note, programming note, we will have the Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador on at 11.05. They're not ghosting me today, and I only jest if Fred Hutton's getting his back up. We've been trying to arrange the schedule. Uh, Nobody's fault uh, but availabilities, but we finally have him at 11.05. Time for a break here on VOCM. Back with your calls after that. Welcome back. We're going to go to Olga, who's from Springdale, and she wants to talk about some things going on at the Springdale Hospital. Olga, what's going on there? Okay, I'm from Robert's arm, and a couple of weeks ago, I had a slight accident with one of my toes, and okay. uh, it never got better, and I called the public out there. She says, Olga, you need, really need to go to the to the walk-in clinic, this one in Springdale, on Thursday. That was yesterday. When I got there, they nicely informed me that I could not see a doctor because I needed an appointment for a walk-in clinic. 
I said, you got to be kidding me. It's a walk-in in clinic. clinic. It's self-explained. I said, a walk-in clinic to me is supposed to be for people that cannot get in to see their family physician. It's also to take uh, pressure off of the uh, emergency room. But what did they do with me? They refused me to see a doctor in the to the walk-in clinic, and they made me go to the uh, emergency, and I waited five hours. So was there an issue with a doctor not being at the walk-in there clinic? Was, I mean, there, was, there was a doctor at the walk-in clinic, but you had to have an appointment to see him. And was it busy at the walk? I'm just trying to understand, even if... I, even I if, don't under, Well, she just told me that... Yeah. However many, I don't know how many patients he booked, maybe 20, 30, 40, I don't know. But she distinctly told me that they were booked for the day into the walk-in clinic. They, they, you had to have an appointment to get into the walk-in clinic. Now, I do know, as you say, you're right. The name suggests you could have 300 people there. You could have two people there. As long as there are people there and you advertise walk-in, there's nothing that would suggest you need an appointment. I do know that said. Now, some walk-in clinics up here will tell you you have to do make an You can walk in and make an appointment for that day, but you never knew that going into uh, into this when you were given the advice Why to go down. Why do you need an appointment for a walk-in clinic? Well, I, 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 again, I don't run them, but I, I, I get the, the sense probably some have is there's still only so many people you can have. But, but the if point she being, had said to me, Mrs. Yeah. Lear, uh, uh, we only take uh, 50 people okay. for the day. I could understand that. Right, exactly. But, but you had to phone in and make an appointment. That, that's the difference. <laughs> Yeah, it, I, I I totally get your frustration. So you get you get to the uh, you get to the emergency room, and then you got to wait. So what you think maybe it's going to take an hour, two hours takes five hours. That took five hours. To me, an emergency room is supposed to be kept for people that yeah. got heart attacks, strokes, car accidents, blood clots. They are cancer patients. They are emergencies. I had a bad uh, injured toe, but that was not an emergency, so I had to wait five hours, and I was denied an appointment into the walk-in clinic. Um, yeah. our, system is not, our system is so badly broken, it's just totally dismantled. Yeah, and it's 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 yeah, and I'm going to talk to Dr. Fury about this in a little in a little while. Do you have access to your own family physician down there, or is oh, that yes, not even an yes, option? I do. Okay. I do. Yes, okay. I have. I have a family physician. Matter of fact, he's the one that I saw with the toe, but I had to wait five hours to see him in in the emergency room because I was denied access because they were overbooked for the walk-in clinic. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I hear you on that. I'm just trying to get a read of the of the rest of the circumstances. The fine point you make, too, about emergency rooms, because it, it is one that uh, that uh, that I always used to think as well, too. People would, in, in, in the days before we were having the struggles, people would go in, you know, for things that maybe you could go to a doctor, but their doctor wasn't available, so they'd go in. So we've developed this habit of, you know, and some of this is on us. But, yep, totally hear you. That's very frustrating. Anything else you'd like to add, Olga? No. No, no, I just wanted to make my point that 
to me, the medical system is broken, and I believe if they're going to uh, have to have an appointment for a walk-in clinic, well, then they should find another word for it because what you have to make an appointment, it is not a walk-in clinic. Yeah, I mean, the other word for it is often just a, a, a clinic or advertise properly or instruct the doctors accordingly who were referring so that you don't have the frustration that you have because more frustration is of no benefit to anybody. Because, I mean, what happens if you if you still got if you got to go somewhere? And it's not an emergency, but you need to see a doctor. Uh, that's what a walk-in clinic is for. Yeah, no, agreed. There are a lot, uh, totally. All right, thank you, Olga. Okay, Appreciate the call. Have a great day. Bye-bye. You too. Yeah, walk-in clinics, what do you really mean? And I know there are others like the one Olga uh, experienced, advertised. Tell the truth. Makes a difference. People will try to understand, and you'll lessen frustration. You won't lessen calls for us with that, but uh, we're okay. Now, I've got one more call before we go to the news, and that is Doris Squires on line three. Doris, you want to tell us about a fundraiser for Guatemala? Yes. Hello. Uh, Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm calling from the Anglican Church of the Good Samaritans, and every couple of years we send a group over to Guatemala. And this Saturday morning, we in uh, July the 16th, we have a big garage sale at 10 St. Clair Avenue at our church. And it starts at 8.30 in the morning, and all the things that we sell and all the money that we make go to the groundwork for Guatemala. We have people going over there in February to do a lot of groundwork and mm-hmm. build houses and things like that. How did the relationship develop with Guatemala? That's that's an interesting one. It's not somewhere you'd think there'd be an, a natural Newfoundland connection to Guatemala. Give us a bit of the backstory on that, please. Uh, the backstory on that would be the best person to talk to is Father Darrell. Okay. And uh, I've, I've been over to Guatemala myself and my husband and my son and that. We've been over helping. And we went over for 10 days. And in 10 days, we built 10 houses. That's amazing. You know, oh, it's 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 amazing, and I mean, if you think they're they're poor people, you have to go to Guatemala and see how poor they really are. We bring over clothes for babies. We make our own diapers and bring them over for the families, and, and we oh, you wouldn't believe the things that this church does for these people. Every two years, we send a group over to do it, and it's uh, we help rebuild a school over there. We help the school children. We bring over medicine. We, we do so much. It's unbelievable how we do. Um, okay. Well, we uh, we thank you for the call. I would just say this about Guatemala. I had a, a good friend who's married to a woman from Guatemala. I've learned Guatemala has excellent macadamia nuts. They export a lot of nuts. Have you had some when you've been there? <laughs> No, I, I didn't. I didn't have that privilege. But uh, hopefully in a few years' time when I go back again, that I will have that privilege. But uh, they are all going down now this February coming up. And uh, like I said, it's a big garage sale at 10 St. Clair Avenue. And please come and help support us. They, uh, you've made the appeal. I will encourage people to go there. Thank you for the call today, Doris. Appreciate it. Thank you for taking my call. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Fascinating connection, eh? Newfoundlanders, particularly different organizations like churches helping out everywhere. We're going to have Dr. Fury in a moment. Of course, he came into the public spotlight um, for the work he did uh, in Haiti. Um, Newfoundlanders just love to help. Time now for the news here on VOCM. And when we come back right after the news, the premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, Andrew Fury. Andrew Fury. 
Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. All right. Welcome back to Open Line as promised. And he's busy and he's fitting us in today. I appreciate that. The uh, Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, Dr. Andrew Fury. Premier, how are you? I'm well, Tim. How are you? Uh, well, I'm glad I'm well, and I'm glad you're well, because I wouldn't want to be sick right now, Premier. Uh, it's uh, I joke about it, but uh, you've just come back from B.C. You've gone through these meetings. Uh, you said something that stuck with me, and I think uh, stuck with many Newfoundlanders and many Canadians, and that is, as it relates to the broad debate about 22%, $28 billion, $35 billion, people don't care how much money it is. They want their system to work. Are we at a point, Premier, where people are prepared, citizens, government officials, to realize that the system as now structured all across the country, not just in Newfoundland and Labrador, needs some major fixing and are prepared to do the work to get it done? I really think so, Tim. I think, uh, first of all, let me uh, let me say that we understand that people are frustrated and no one has all the answers. If we had a quick answer, we would have implemented it uh, a long time ago. Uh, and we're coming out of COVID, of course, which has uh, stalled uh, the, the healthcare system and some innovation. But I think that that conversation more broadly uh, is, uh, is deserved uh, by all of us and by Canadians in general uh, right now, because I do think we have a generation opportunity uh, right now to reimagine the healthcare system. I think we all know that the healthcare system was designed really in the 60s and hasn't really uh, evolved in a major shift, in a major kind of way to to be a modern, a sustainable system that Canadians deserve. So, you know, the COVID-19 has exposed gaps that are really have become just giant crevices uh, because of COVID-19. But now we really have to, we can, we can run away or we can look at this and say, okay, now's an opportunity, not just to patchwork fix uh, things for the short term, but to really uh, reinvent the system, uh, to modernize it, to provide sustainable Canadian level services from coast to coast to coast. And I think that that was a message that was felt uh, by uh, by all premiers uh, at the table in Victoria. I will say this, that, we, you know, I think uh, that uh, we saw this coming uh, and uh, despite the challenges of the pandemic, we were fortunate to have Sister Elizabeth Davis and Dr. Parfrey uh, conceptualize how we could move forward. So uh, in speaking to some premiers, uh, we are a little ahead uh, of that in terms of doing some planning while others are still now looking at this going, OK, well, how do we move forward? All of that to say, Tim, that doesn't help people who are in the emergency yep. department today uh, so we are we have to take uh, a, you know short medium and long-term strategies if we're going to uh, fix a system that is actively working uh, so it's it's like changing the spokes on a bike wheel as it's moving you know you have to you have to do it very carefully uh, but we also know that we have to address the cute yep. acute needs of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians right now so I almost hear contradiction and explain to me why it isn't. You talk about sustainability of the system and a re-innovation re, re or an innovation of the system. How do the two meet? Do you mean by that we're picking out the best? If there are, And certainly there must be some things no, that are working. No, not at all. I mean, the, the, the innovation that creates a new system okay. or a modernized system needs to be sustainable. Okay. And by that, I mean that we can't, re, we can't revert to the, to the old system. We can't regress. We can't 
we need to use this opportunity now to move forward. If we just keep investing in, in old uh, uh, in old frameworks, uh, that will uh, continue to lead to the same results. And I think we all recognize that that's not working now. So innovate to a, to a more modern and sustainable system. Um, one of the things that's been very prominent this week on, on Open Line, and you made an announcement yesterday about it, uh, and, and that's the lack of physician availability or the lack of physicians entirely in different communities. We had uh, Dr. Sigorska, who's a Ukrainian uh, who's come to Canada. She's practiced medicine, according to her, eight years in the Ukraine. Uh, she wants to practice medicine here. She looks at our system, and you know this better than I, where she's got to get properly credentialized that doesn't happen quickly Nova Scotia's made some changes here how are we going to look at changing the credential system to get people practicing more quickly like Dr. Sigorska Sure. So let me uh, address that. That, This is a challenge across the country. It's it's not unique to Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, But uh, I, first of all, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians have been well served by international medical graduates for for decades. Dr. Parfrey being one of them, in fact. Exactly. Uh, They, uh, but there has been a change in how they're credentialed, Uh, and so uh, that has uh, led to a bit of a perfect storm in some of some of our rural and remote communities, in particular. Uh, So uh, last week, uh, prior to uh, heading to BC, I met with all the all the people who would be involved in that process because Tim, I couldn't really fully understand it to be honest mm-hmm. with you. Uh, you know, what where were the delays? What were the credentialing? What were the standards? So what I did last week was I put the NLMA, Memorial Medicine, and the College of Physicians and Surgeons in the same room, and I said, walk me through all of this. And uh, what I uh, took from that is a willingness amongst the, the three entities uh, to uh, to look for efficiencies in that process while maintaining a standard of care because we. You know, I'm not going to comment on any individual, but yeah, of course. There, there has to be there has to be a standard of care that is acceptable, uh, uh, and and Newfoundlanders and Labradorians deserve that. So, what uh, they were there was an openness uh, to uh, look at streamlining the processes, to look at uh, thinking outside the box, even within the different steps, uh, as to how we can. Uh, credential or credential differently uh, to help fulfill the needs uh, within uh, within the system currently. So uh, there, we are working on that. Uh, I would also like to move uh, to a, a more national license for physicians and surgeons uh, to allow for uh, mobility into our province. I know that's a there is a, a discussion at the national tables, but uh, on, a, on, a, on a one license for Canada. But in in the interim. Um, I don't understand why uh, there's barriers uh, to practice. If, if you're a physician or surgeon in good standing um, in one province, why do we why do we make it difficult uh, for them to come in either locum, perhaps locum, and then decide to stay and live here? So we're looking at uh, how to uh, how to make that uh, how to eliminate that barrier for for uh, for doctors to come and uh, and enjoy a practice here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Maybe the hardest thing to do right now with health care is level set, and that, and by that I mean in terms of expectations. So you and Minister Osborne and the president of the LMA yesterday announced, uh, as I said, some measures around compensation that will hopefully help address um, some of the service issues in different communities. You've also got a surgical task force. But your job, among other things, uh, is to set levels and try and manage expectations. So... What should we, what is realistic to expect, Premier, over the next six months, 
year, two years in terms of health care services? Because we know how bad it is now. What are the what, are, what what should we expect in the days to come beyond words and more dollars when it comes to what happens when I go to an emergency room or what happens if I don't have a doctor in my community? Can you set some levels of expectation for us? Sure. Yeah. I mean, nothing is going to change overnight. I mean, it, it's taken decades uh, for the system, decades and a pandemic uh, to really expose, uh, truly expose the weaknesses in the system. So, like I said at the start, at the outset, if there was a quick fix we would have done it i mean there's the minister or myself there's no no one no other premiers sitting in their offices going now how can we cancel surgeries today or how can we close an emergency department today quite the opposite we want uh, to be there to support these uh, these important instruments of uh, of health in our province so i think you know i think we're in for a rough uh, couple of months um, uh, but i want to assure uh, the people of the province that uh, we are fully seized with this um, and some of the items you know we've announced uh, in the past uh, to show that uh, i know that again doesn't help the person waiting an extra period of time in the emergency department but we've taken uh, the position to create uh, a new assistant deputy minister of health uh, responsible solely for recruitment and retention of healthcare professionals we uh, so she is fully seized with this um, i've taken a personal uh, a personal i've personally called out for physicians across the country uh, to call me i've had great discussions with uh, physicians looking to move home um, uh, but we've also, as you know, we've also offered uh, people who want to come and work here as a family doctor a hundred thousand uh, dollars as a as a return of service agreement. So there, there are those are the acute things that we can do. There's not much. We we are open to hearing the solutions. By the way, so if you have them, please reach out to, to myself or the minister's office. And and I just met with a couple in, in Bonavista here who have some locally driven solutions, and and we're interested in hearing those. We don't want to be a barrier here we want to be solution focused and we will uh, take suggestions and and act and i think you saw an example of that yesterday with the nlma this was a solution that they arrived at for category b sites uh, so hospitals like bonavista who are struggling uh, to find emergency room coverage uh, and to increase the incentives for physicians to cover that was one thing that they came up with and it's certainly something that we acted on but overall this uh, this system is uh, He's in trouble across the country right now, and uh, it is going to take some time uh, to fix. All right. Before I let you go, last question, because I know you're tight on time and I appreciate the time. It is this. Um, you're you're in the middle of your political career. You're 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 middle. Involved. Well, I mean, <laughs> beginning, beginning. I mean, everything's so fast. I mean, you're, you're not Boris Johnson, so I know you'll last longer than he did. But uh, my question to you is this. When you lo- will look at your political life, how important is it uh, for you as a physician, as somebody who invested so much time in Team Broken Earth and, and brought medical care to, to areas that didn't even have any uh, to get this right. Where does this sit in Dr. Andrew Fury's compass of things he wants to get directed and get achieved while you're serving as premier? I think it's top priority. You know, like that's why we, uh, you know, if you look in the rearview mirror, we took the, uh, I would say, a bold step of, despite the challenges of the pandemic, having a health accord. 
uh, with uh, stakeholders for across, from across the province uh, and across sectors, across industries, uh, to engage, uh, to tell us uh, what their needs and what their desires were moving forward. I think uh, it's, it's, it's incredibly important. But look, I'm a, I'm a realist as well. Uh, healthcare is a journey with no end uh, because you can always improve. Uh, that's that's part of what makes medicine fun in some respects. Is there's always advancements in technologies. There's always uh, uh, changing models, and uh, we need to make sure that we're recognizing that. But it's a it's a top priority for us. Uh, it's one that I'm fully uh, seized with. Uh, I think we do have a uh, as Canadians, even broader than Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, an opportunity right now to to really look how, how we're delivering care in the system. And I think the pandemic has shown us uh, different opportunities embedded in those challenges, whether it's the use of technology and virtual care, advancing skills um, to help uh, in, in some rural and remote communities. And, uh, and we will continue to, uh, to move forward with, with, uh, with those uh, concepts in mind and the framework in mind. I think it can't be lost on all of us that that deserves a, a healthy investment and concentration in the social determinants of health as well. So, you know, we are we are fully seized with it. It is, it is an important topic. Uh, and uh, I think the fact that we did take the bold move of having a health accord despite the challenges of the pandemic uh, highlights that. Having a health transformation a deputy minister in, in Dr. Parafree highlights that. And some of the actions that we've already taken to help uh, support people in their communities uh, highlight that as well. But uh, I'm a, you know, a realist. It is a, it is a big uh, system uh, to change. And uh, I know that there are going to be acute needs that, uh, that need to be addressed along the way. All right. I'll uh, let it go there. Thanks for the time today, Premier. Uh, always good to talk to you. Take care. All right, that was the Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, Andrew Fury, his take on some of the challenges in the health care system. You heard, and I think that's newsworthy, uh, the Premier say he had brought together a meeting of all the, the leading players to look at the issue of accreditation that Dr. Sigorska raised with us earlier. Let's see how quickly they can act uh, and uh, what perhaps new procedures look like to get physicians from other countries that are here out on the front lines helping us. Time for a break here on VOCM's Open Line. We've got uh, Josh, I think, standing by when we come back. You guys don't know, but I could hear Greg's voice twice in my head today. Then on the air, and he's also helping out producing today because Dave had to run off to a medical appointment. So Greg is here. I'm I've got the leader watching me today. I better not screw up. Uh, so far, I think I've done okay, but he'll grade me afterwards. Now, I got Josh on line eight. Josh, you want to talk about concerns uh, for about the Center of Nursing Studies. T- tell me about that, please. Yes, I do. Well, first, I want to start off by I've always wanted to say this. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> I wanted to get that out of the way. <laughs> you delivered that well, man. You delivered that well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So, yeah, so I guess the best place to start, and this is actually a pretty good segue from uh, Premier Fury was saying about trying to not stay the norm course and, you know, trying to try to think outside the box to really get things changed here. And I really think that needs to be addressed uh, in the education of the nurses that are uh, that they're receiving at the Center for Nursing Studies right now. Um, My wife and I uh, both signed up for the program. We started the LPM program in September of this year. We were very excited. Uh, I was especially excited to change my career and uh, just try to make a difference, even if it's just one person one day. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So we got there. Everyone was super excited. We had about 85 people starting out there. Um, 
And, you know, everyone was excited, but the first red flag I kind of noticed about a weekend is that I inquired about uh, health and dental because I never really heard anything about that. Uh, then we were told that there was no health and dental for the LPNs, even though there was health and dental for the RN students because they were technically a part of Mont. Okay, so and, and again, you're part of Kona, is that correct? Uh, no, sorry, the Center for Nursing Studies. So it's the okay. it's the direct nursing school here. So Kona the does direct provide, nursing school. Okay. Yes, that's right. So Kona provides LPN programs as well, and it's kind of okay. it's sent through the center. Okay. Um, so you know what? I, I me, and my, me and my wife said we could live with this, even though we were four years without dental or health. So we said this is a year and a half program. We can keep our heads down and hopefully get out with finally some health and dental. So we kind of just put that aside. Um, and now, obviously, the course was very challenging. It was also very rewarding uh, once we got into the field and we started with our clinicals. But another thing I've noticed was a lot of the inconsistencies in the teaching and how the students were treated apart from each other. There, there's very little consistency in how the program is uh, kind of taught student to student. Now, I know that has to do with, you know, different nurses, uh, you know, the stress that everyone's under. So, and, know, and I would just say there, Josh, that, uh, again, having a experience in different university settings, yeah. I don't think that may be unique to the, the Center for Nursing Studies. I exactly. mean, a lot of it depends on the, you know, there's the curriculum and then there's mm-hmm. the, the engagement of the instructor and the instructor's sure. abilities sure. to deliver that material and engage students. Sorry to interrupt. Go oh, ahead. No, that's fine. And uh, this is how I want to do it, too, because uh, right now, too, I'm trying to stay calm and cordial with this because this is the best way to go about it. I don't want to use my anxiety or anger to, you know, kind of rip anyone because that's that's not what I'm here for. Um, And I kind of learned that early on um, with kind of just dealing with, you know, um, the teachers and the faculty that, you know, they expressed to me that it seems like I'm coming from a place of anger. And I really took that to heart and then really tried to curb the way and just how I kind of dealt with the people because, you know, like everyone else, I'm up for, you know, my criticisms and all We're all human. We make mistakes. Exactly. Exactly. So fast forward to our, you know, we all know that we did this. We knew coming in that we're going to hospitals with COVID. We knew the precautions were there. Um, When Omicron hit, uh, me and my wife wanted to take some extra precautions because, we have an unvaccinated daughter. She's three years old. Okay. So we were told that three three ply medical masks were supplied, and I said that's great. I said if we were concerned, could we be provided in ninety five masks? And they said, you know, due to the shortages and stuff like that, we cannot do that. And I said, okay, what if I get the same medical grade in ninety five masks, one for each shift, for every day? They told me I could not do that as well because other nurses and other people would be questioning why we had N95s and they wouldn't. And I said, that's, that's a little strange. Uh, and I kind of, I kind of just took that as it was. And me and my wife just wore N95s anyways. And when we got into our clinicals with our faculty instructors, they had absolutely no issue. They said, here are our N95s if anyone else would like one. We said, well, that's great. You know, it's, it's nice to see, you know, people in the field are actually concerned and willing to listen to our concerns. So through all that, um, I I had to say that my mental health was at an all-time low, and I started missing a few clinical days. Um, They provided, um, you know, very set specific days that we could make up these clinical days. And in the legislation, they said, and I understand this too, you need X amount of hours to continue on. So they also, they did some online simulations to counteract this, because at this point, people were dropping like flies with COVID. So people were just 
you know, you list, you'd miss a full week because you're co- you can't come in. So they had the simulations to kind of make up for that. Um, when I expressed that I was having um, a mental health day, I, I had very high anxiety to the point where I would get physical symptoms. I would, I would vomit and basically not be able to go in. So as you know, a student and, you know, hopefully being a nurse, I was trying to be forthright with them and say, I don't think it's a good time for me to come in. Um, okay. I was informed I was informed on a Friday that I would need a doctor's note by Monday. And if I couldn't do that, there was nothing they could do for me. Um, at that point, I obviously do not have a doctor like another 125,000 people. So I said, do you expect me to go to the emergency room to get a doctor's note to cover two clinical days when someone else could have just used the simulation days to cover those. Mm-hmm. At that point, they, they basically said there was nothing they could do for me, and if I wanted, I could take a leave of absence for a year. And at that point, I said, sure. And now at this point, I've gone back to my previous career because the stress I felt uh, just as a student was so immense that I couldn't possibly think that I would be cut out for this position. And I'll, I'll just put one more piece down here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got about, you got about a, a, a minute and a half. Go ahead. Okay, and, and that's fine. And that'll, that'll cover everything here. I just want to cover a few things that I also found out. Basically, I felt, and many of our other students were not valued from the beginning. Uh, we did not have any pay for our clinical time, not even um, minimum wage. And we also found out after the fact that we weren't protected under workers' health. So in the event of an accident, um, we would not have been covered. So if I had injured my back, and had to take time off, I wouldn't have been covered by workers' health. And seeing how things would have progressed, I would have been told that I could have only um, taken a leave of absence. And two other examples, I had an international student who requested two days off to uh, to return to her home country for a wedding. She was refused, and she had to take a year off so that she could have her wedding. Um, And another student now who's actually dealing with COVID missed four days and was told there was nothing they can do for her, even though there's days left that she could make up and that she could take a leave of absence if she wanted. So I just, I kind of want to get some of this out there so people know what student Well, I mean, I guess the great irony in all of this, Josh, is you're, you're, you thought you were being trained to care for people, but you're not being cared for yourself, and that's going to be you, very just. You hit it right there, Tim. It's the hypocrisy, and I, I try not to use hyperbolic words with this, but the hypocrisy was so much that I, I couldn't take it, and I went back to the oil and gas industry <laughs> okay. because I found that less stressful than trying to become a student nurse. All right. Well, thank you for the story. Uh, I hope if people are listening from from the school that they take your comments seriously and they think about uh, the impact it will have on others. Because, again, there's so much to discourage people from getting into healthcare right now, given the enormous burdens, the burnout, the challenges. Mm -hmm. Um, And and in fairness to the people who are teaching, it's not easy either. But if you want people in, you got to create the environment. All right. Got to leave it there, Josh. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for the time. All right. That was Josh. You're welcome. Uh, time for a break here on VOCM's Open Line. we got about 29 minutes left. Fitch your calls in. We'll do that if you give us a ring. Back with you shortly. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to Open Line. We've got about 23 minutes left. and got a couple of people in the queue and... You can get in, too, hopefully, if I get these calls on quickly. So I'll go to Craig on line one. Craig, you want to talk about something you just reminded me of. I'm getting a carbon tax rebate, apparently, because uh, I live in Ontario. But you're not in Newfoundland. No, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm visiting Ontario, and that's just how I uh, found out about it. 
Yeah, yeah, today. So just so people know. Yeah, everybody, it, everybody, everybody's cool. getting, like, some, some households are getting up to $1,000. Yeah, there's a bunch of categories. Uh, so as of July, so this is the beginning of the direct payments of carbon pricing rebates, as the government would want you to call it. Uh, some people, as Craig just said, can qualify, depending where you are, uh, just looking at one step. For a family for living in Alberta, total payment for the year, $1,079. Uh, family for in Ontario, I think it's uh, 745 Checks start going out today. And where does it apply? Uh, it's places where the federal plan is in place. So Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. Go ahead. What, what, what would, uh, what's your take on all this, Craig? Well, I don't know why the Maritimes aren't included. I mean, Newfoundland is paying some of the highest prices for gas in the country. Yeah, but to get this payment, if my memory serves me correct, you uh, had to be under the federal carbon tax plan, carbon pricing, carbon tax plan. Newfoundland is not. The four provinces are uh, are, are getting the other four provinces that I mentioned get the money because they are under the federal plan. Newfoundland has its own plan. Oh, so we've opted out of the federal plan, so that that uh, disqualifies Newfoundlanders from getting this money. That is exactly right. Yeah, that's why you're not getting it. Maybe if you're in Ontario now, you can get a quick check. I don't know. Tell them you live here. We'll get you a card or something. Yeah, I just, I'm just visiting. <laughs> I don't think that'll work. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's... It would be nice to try, though. <laughs> hey, listen, those Government of Canada checks, you just signed the back. I think you could still go to a store and people would, uh, people would cash it. Not that I want to encourage any fraud or illegal activity in the last 20 minutes of the show. So what are you hearing about this as you're here, then? What are people saying about getting this check? Because I'm just, as I'm talking to you, I'm looking at some of the news headlines and uh, people... Uh, people now could use a check so it it uh it may be, be some good news but what are you hearing well, everybody i've talked to up there is very very happy with it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean they're, they're they're glad to be getting a bit of money from the feds yeah uh it uh <laughs> it's not like we don't give them a ton before people should understand before um there were some refundable tax credits that you could get on your income tax returns for things like this and um just again to provide detail these are the four provinces where tr- the prime minister imposed the federal carbon tax now fifty dollars a ton raising to 170 in 2030 so that's why uh the imposition of the tax brought the tax benefit anything else you want to add Craig? No, I was just surprised because my uh, fiance's uncle, he he was under the assumption everybody in Canada would get it, but I guess we're we're out. Well, glad you called. Glad we got to talk about it because that is happening today. You have a good trip while you're here. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care. All right, that was uh, was Craig, uh, and yeah, it's uh, I'd forgotten about that myself. We did talk a little bit about climate change earlier, but didn't have the chance to to get into to this, which is happening today, or the beginning of it today. Uh, now, going to go to Mike Keogh on line two, I, and I need to sort of apologize to Mike. Well, he won't expect an apology. Hi, Mike, Mike's been uh, hi, Mike. You've been tweeting a lot today about a, a, a number of different healthcare issues. Just haven't had a had a chance to uh, reply to you. So. Give your you know, tweets you got a very, oral. You got a very, yeah, you got a very busy program on the go. First of all, Tim, you spoke earlier in the program uh, mm-hmm. to a uh, 
uh, uh, uh, to a, a physician, I believe, about melanoma, I believe, skin yes. cancer, perhaps. And uh, uh, you uh, related the, your experience with it yourselves. Uh, and uh, you, I think you also remember that you're on a, you, you remarked that you're on a board. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, um, I, I joined this just recently, the Impact Melanoma Board, to try and help raise some awareness about melanoma. So doing double duty today, Mike. Yeah, thanks very much for that, by the way, for the volunteering. Uh, very interesting comments. Uh, my own life, not me personally, but somebody within my family unit is licked mm-hmm. by that flame. And, uh, you know, you go out and you get on the basketball courts in the sunshine yeah. and you have a great time to get burnt to a crisp and spend 30, 40 years being monitored yearly for skin cancer. So it's uh, very important. you got a very good message out there. Uh, just just uh, on that, so that. we can add one layer to the message, and it's uh, Dr. Carroll didn't have the opportunity to state it, but they think that a lot of just adding to what you said a lot of skin cancer comes from child could come from childhood sunburns uh and what what happens as a consequence as you grow anyway go ahead mike yeah okay Uh, about health care and your opening remarks were about change the need for change i think everybody agrees with that dr fury as well uh, had an undertow on his comments about change Um, I think what perhaps was the most noticeable in that whole interview was a good interview, but the most noticeable one is that you said newsworthy, newsworthy, I'm sorry, was to get them all together in a room, the three, I think, directing minds, let's call it that, Mm -hmm. as a group uh, on healthcare, and to have a chat about accreditation uh, was uh, one of the things I assume they spoke about others as well. And then to be followed up by your call from Josh, uh, uh, you know, uh, relating what's going on with him trying to improve and to become more service to the community. Change is good, Tim. I think we all agree with that. I'm an advocate for change. I went through the old system they keep referring to. I'm in my 70s, but I'm open to change. Tim, when you had your experience with your melanoma, you remarked how quickly you were able to have it dealt with. Was it because of the system where you were in, or did you just happen to be playing rugby with somebody and you knew them and you got in quickly and got it done quickly? Um, Well, the paramedic who saw me was actually from Nova Scotia, and I was in Ottawa when he saw this. I was lucky to get into my uh, GP here in Ottawa on that uh, a couple of days after he said I... I, uh, after he told me I should get it looked at, that GP who saw the melanoma then said, you know, you got to get into a dermatologist right away. And he got me in. And I think, again, it was probably because of the type of um, mole that I had that they believed it was uh, important that I get in quickly. So it was a bit of knowing who to go to and then the actual uh, mole itself and, and what it could have meant. Yeah, the descriptors on it. Yeah, I think that would happen here as well fairly quickly. Uh, you know, Dr. Fury spoke about the, his meeting, um, and I think this accreditation is a, is a very serious problem, but from year to year it gets talked about and never gets acted upon. Uh, I believe he spoke about change. I think change is necessary amongst the uh, providers themselves, amongst that community, the physicians and the ruling bodies. But I don't think they're capable of making that change. I don't think they're willing to make the change. They're willing to talk about it, but I don't see them doing it. I think Josh illustrated that probably more so than I ever could. Uh, Change is good, Tim, but I'm very experienced with 
administering health care programs throughout the United States. And do you know we have a contact center here in St. John's that literally has hundreds of people that daily, five days a week, administer American-style healthcare programs, insurance programs. You know that? We're probably the most knowledgeable in Canada, if not the North America and maybe the world, in these systems, in these in the private healthcare system. These people cannot speak to you. They can't call you. They're mm-hmm. obviously employees of a company that does it. But we do have it. And uh, and uh, and I had experience for a number of years of, you know, having people purchase these programs. I think that's where the change that Dr. Fury is talking about. I think that's what's happening, watching what's going on. I don't think we know what's going on. I think it's going on. And I think we're reacting to covid and we're reacting things and we're and and the private sector the for-profit sector is seizing advantage of it to jump in and say we've got change we're going to improve it but i don't think we fully understand what we're bringing in and i think at the end of the day there's going to be a lot of people not covered under various programs uh, and, and get into severe financial difficulty trying to pay for and access services that they now get under the current system. Well, we uh, yeah, and again, we don't – I think the overriding point I, I take from your comments too, Mike, which is an important one, which is what I was trying to get at with Dr. Fury in the end, is there's there's an expectation that we – whatever is coming, we have some say in it, and we are told about it, and we are there's some engagement on it. I, I firmly believe one of the biggest challenges in healthcare is just dialogue. People need to understand their options, how it works, get rid of some of the myths and the fears, where we're going to go, why decisions are being made. It may not please people about some of the choices that are there and, and what that may mean, but we need to be transparent about it because as you just alluded to, and I have no way to, to, to know what's accurate or not accurate, I'm not privy to inside in information in, in, in any way, shape, or form. It's, it's And it's a bit what was in that article. It's we fear what we don't know. And if we don't know it, as Robin Urbach said, maybe we are happy with what we have. So if we are going to be doing something new, and we've gotten some snippets of what that is, tell us. And help us understand and help us understand why this is better and how our money is being used. And if there are private options that may come into play, that could be problematic. Yeah. So in closing, Tim, I know you have other people, but in closing, it's different if you do know. Like I know I've been there. I've experienced that. I've done that. I know what this private system is going to do to us, where it's eventually going to go. We now have a deputy minister, I believe, of transformation. You know, these yeah, things Pat. are being implemented. Uh, you know, Dr. Parfrey is a great guy. I, I know that he's a wonderful rugby coach and just probably a wonderful person. I'm not sure what management skills he has in running a healthcare system or the good sister, Sister Davis, who is a wonderful humanitarian. But I don't know if they're skilled in being able to do that. I don't think they are. The big challenge is to get the status quo, which are 
It's licensing controlled and regulated by themselves to protect themselves. And I don't think that I don't see that happening. And I think that's going to be a big problem. Anyway, Tim, I know you have other callers today. Thank you very much. And uh, enjoy your summer. I think you're finished today for a while. So I am. Uh, enjoy the rest. Enjoy the Thanks. rest of your summer. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thoughtful call. All right. Time for a break here on Open Line. We've got space for one more call, two more calls, maybe right after the break. Welcome back to Open Line. We've got time for one last call. And that call goes to Philip. He wants to talk about uh, road tax for EV cars. Yeah, they are, Philip. Yes, thanks, Tim. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. Um, I, I, I got a question, and I, I don't know if anybody can really have, has the answer to it, but uh, with regards to the road tax that's put on every liter of fuel that's sold, how are they going to handle that road tax with electric vehicles? You mean, are you talking about gas, ta- the yes. tax? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, they, well that, that's, I guess that they would say that is the point of EV vehicles. If you're not putting gas or diesel in your car, then you're not going to be paying that tax. Uh, arguably, though, I suppose you could make the argument if your power bill, your consumption of power goes up, or electricity goes up, that may have some impact on your bills at home. So, uh, but, but that's why, you know, that's part of Trudeau's carbon pricing plan is to make it a little bit more expensive to drive to discourage people from driving so you save money if you take an alternative like an electric vehicle but i don't think there's any intent that i've heard yet philip uh but that could change you know how governments like to get revenue sometimes uh to tax um to tax at point because i don't know how you do it um the, the 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 charging of cars now you do also get their tax i believe there's still there are in, in federally there's tax rebates of some sort and maybe in some provincial jurisdictions for purchase of elect of electric vehicles yes there is uh, that's the industry i'm in in the automobile industry but i guess i guess my point is the road tax was originally put into play for our roads and whether yes. it's a combustion engine or electric engine is irrelevant when it comes to the road mm-hmm. so i'm just wondering are we i mean like are they going to start to tax the the electric car eventually uh because at the end of the day um you know combustion engines will start to slow down in our marketplace over the next number of years uh where are they going to get the money to do our roads yeah, because we're still going to need them. It's not the age of the Jetsons uh, where we're flying. Exactly. Flying. Yeah. I, 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 you know what? I've heard very little on a policy front about that. I suspect it's kind of a secondary thing now because they first want people to buy the vehicles and make the transition. But I imagine as transition happens, that's going to have to come to the fore because, you look, I've heard it all week on this show, and I certainly know it uh, in this province and and other provinces road there's a lot of roads that need work uh and the infrastructure also that comes with these cars as you know are 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 charging stations and Uh some of them are being put up by municipalities some of them are being put up by private corporations there probably will be a push to have other governments build these charging stations so that's going to cost people money too yeah and, and, you know, the other side of it, too, is, and you just said infrastructure, which is so important, uh, you know, it, it, if you had 50% of the people in this province driving electric cars, our grid could not handle it. 
Well, they probably wouldn't get very far. I mean, I haven't been across the Trans-Canada from St. John's to uh, Port yeah. of Basque lately, but I don't imagine there are many stations where you can charge, or are there? Or do I have that completely wrong? Uh, there's, they're, they're starting to build them, there's no question. But I'm more focused on the your like residential areas, people yep. plugging their cars in at 7 o'clock at night, and that's mm-hmm. when everyone's going to do it. Uh, will the grid be able to handle that type of power well because look what happens in different jurisdictions uh you remember the great brown brown outage the brownage what do they call it It wasn't brown outage we were browned out uh here in ontario in the early 2000s and they were attributing that if you recall to the heat and people turning on their air conditioning units and this was driving up the use of electricity and yeah you're gonna be using you're gonna use something to power it it's gonna have some kind of outcome that perhaps is being anticipated by very bright minds, but we haven't heard where it will go in terms of our pocketbooks. Anyway, all right, got to go shortly, Philip. Anything else you want to add quickly? Thank you very much. No, no, that's fine. Thank you very much for taking my call, Tim. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. That was uh, that was Philip. Concludes the calls for this week. So I believe, and this is great, Patty will be back next week. He's had a couple of uh, good weeks off. I'm sure he'll be ready to rumble when he comes back. And lots of uh, insights. Important to have his voice back in the chair with so much happening in uh, in the province. Thank you, as always. Uh, oh, I love, 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 as Greg Smith, Mike Murphy, everybody, Mike Campbell at VOCM knows, sitting in this chair. Um, it's always an honor. It's always a pleasure, and it's great to uh, talk to all of you and get into the discussions of the day and work our way through so many things. Thank you uh, to Greg Smith for sitting in for uh, for Dave uh, Williams, and thank you to Dave Williams for doing the exceptional job that he always does, guiding me through this program, and thank you to the whole VOCM team. I believe, if I recall, I'm back in early August for a day or so, so I look forward to all of that. For now, have a great weekend. Enjoy that sun that apparently is splitting the rocks. I'm Tim Powers, and this has been VOCM's Open Line.